0: Lucifer means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Live Podcast The Blood of the Other, Part 5
1: Ice, Moon,
0: Apocalypse special guest, Ideas of Ice
1: and Fire. Hey there, friends and fellow myth-heads from across the lands of YouTube, Twitter, WordPress, Facebook, and podcast players everywhere. It is I, your faithful servant, LML, and I'm working hard to bring you fresh and interesting A Song of Ice and Fire content, fresher and more interesting than ever before, despite the... Heavy machinery operating in the yard next door to my house Which you might be able to hear in the background In any case, I hope you have enjoyed all the Con of Thrones panels I've put out for your consumption lately And for those of you who primarily listen through the podcast feed I should tell you that there are a few more panels On the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel That you did not get in the podcast feed Subverting the Archetypes of the Seven John of the Dead The Giants and the Children and Beyond And one just called Dragons! I'm sure you noticed that I started a new live discussion panel show called Between Two Weirwoods, which I plan on using to have all kinds of discussions with all manner of content creators on a wide range of topics. I won't be afraid to go into controversial waters, and the topics will usually be outside the context of mythical astronomy symbolism. Some episodes will have friendly debate, some not. It's going to vary depending on the topic and the guests. In any case, I hope you guys are enjoying all this expansion of content from me, but of course, I will never slack or lessen the intensity or pace of my regular scripted episodes, which will always be the heart of what I do. I'm not anywhere close to running out of material, and there's no way I will run out before The Winds of Winter is released, so fear not. This episode that you're about to hear, Ice Moon Apocalypse, is actually something a little different and that it is edited down from a live performance of my usual scripted episode from last Sunday. My main computer that I do all my audio editing on was in the shop for a couple of weeks, so instead of waiting to release this new episode, I decided to perform it live on YouTube, as I can still live stream from my very old Macintosh, which is my backup computer. Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire was good enough to join me on the stream and live perform the vocal readings from the books, And if you'd like to see the original live performance, you can find it on YouTube, or linked from the essay version of the episode. It has some live banter and a few audience questions, which I've edited out of the podcast version here. For the most part, this podcast will sound the same as usual, just a little bit rougher and more live in places. The reaction to the live pod seems to have been favorable. I was able to hold about 140 viewers through three hours of live podcasting, which, thanks you guys, I am grateful and quite flattered. I'm not sure how often I will be live performing pods like that going forward, but I will continue to take in feedback and see what you guys think, and maybe I'll do it every once in a while, probably with a shorter episode next time. Now with that said, this is a big and exciting episode, so let's get right to it. Thanks again to Quinn from the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel for performing the vocal readings. And be sure to check out his new video on the hidden Lovecraftian influences of A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as new vids about the Chandrian from Pat Rothfuss' Kingkiller Chronicles, which is a great series. And, of course, more videos about Frank Herbert's Dune. Thanks to Stanley Black for our intro music and to John Walsh for our flamenco guitar. And you can check out more of John's flamenco guitar at the John Walsh Guitar YouTube channel. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing great books, of course. And thanks to all of you mythical astronomers who support the show on Patreon or through other means. All right, now let's break that ice moon open and see what's inside. Alright guys, welcome to Blood of the Other Five, Ice Moon Apocalypse, and I did change the name at the last second, because I felt like, it used to be called Snow the Moon Called Down, which is a line from the story, Uh, and I always liked using lines from the story, but it was a bit overly poetic, and I felt, let's go for the more direct name, Ice Moon Apocalypse, because that is... What we are doing. So hey there, friends, patrons, YouTube viewers, podcast listeners, and fellow mythical astronomers all. It's your host, LML, and it's time to talk about the end. At least, the beginning of the end, anyway. It's finally, finally time to discuss the possibility of a new moon meteor incident and a new long night. It's been suggested right from the start, actually. uh, My first episode, which began as an essay before there was such a thing as the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast began with a famous quote from Doria about a Carthian legend of the second moon, which ends with a prophecy. One day, the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack and the dragons will return. Now, while we've seen fire-breathing dragons return, I think it's pretty obvious, when you look at it a little closer, that this Carthian prophecy is actually talking about the meteor dragons returning. Think about it. Dragons only disappeared from the world about 150 years before the present day. Four hundred years ago, the Doom of Valeria killed off most of the Valerian dragons. But before that, the Valerians had had control of dragons going back at least five thousand years, when they wiped out Old gists with their dragons. And even before Valeria, people in Ashai probably had control of dragons. Uh, this Carthene prophecy, however, is—it's got to be centuries old. I mean, it's more than four hundred years old, and so it would be older than the Doom. Which means that when it was written, there were dragons in the world. Therefore, it doesn't really make much sense for the prophecy to speak of dragons returning unless they're talking about the kind of dragons that come from the moon, the kind that only come once every thousand years or so, or every several thousand years, when one of those moons kisses the sun. So when the prophecy says that one day the other moon will kiss the sun and the dragons will return, it's actually nothing less than a prophecy of a future moon disaster and another moon meteor attack. And it's right there in Danny's third chapter It's actually pretty meaningful that this apparent prophecy of Lunar Doom comes halfway through the first book It means that it's something Martin has been planning the whole time, which makes sense Something that big as a part of the ending would really have to be planned out from the beginning As we'll see, the foreshadowing of the Ice Moon Apocalypse has indeed been laid out all throughout the series Just like all the other main events seem to be now, one of the most common questions that I get asked is some version of, but how will we know if moon meteors caused the long night? Well, there are a few ways we could get verification. We could see a brand vision of the hammer of the waters dropping like a falling star. Uh, we could uncover knowledge in a shy, or Sam could find something in one of those old books at the Citadel, that sort of thing. But one of the best confirmations that the moon meteors caused the original long night would be if moon meteors caused the new long night, of course. I mean, it makes sense, right? We all know a new long night is coming, so it's really just a matter of how it will be triggered. Uh, If meteors trigger the first one, it figures that they would probably cause the new one, right? I mean, you'd think a meteor attack might be too spectacular for a song of ice and fire, too distracting. But again, if we all know a new long night is coming, then we can basically just think of the meteor impacts as a very spectacular and symbolically meaningful mechanism to achieve that. Now, in a series full of Chekhov's guns, the biggest gun of all is the impending invasion of the Others, right? I mean, it's been set up since the prologue of A Game of Thrones that the Others will once again invade Westeros and cause everyone a lot of problems. In the books, the Others are actually like vampires. They really can't come out during the day. Now, it's kind of glossed over on the TV show where they just sort of have a cloud follow them around and it gets kind of dim, but in the books... To truly invade Westeros The others need a true long night With the sun hidden during the day And winter taking firm hold What I'm saying is that something has to hide the sun So what could that be? If my main theory is right Martin has already solved this problem once He used moon meteors So is he really going to come up with a whole new way To hide the sun? I don't think so It makes more sense to have the other moon kiss the sun In order to have the dragons return Just like the prophecy says he's really left the reader with this long trail of clues, and I mean, what, 30 podcasts long, about a moon meteor impact causing the original long night, I mean, it sure would make a lot of sense to put some sort of big payoff at the end, right? People who didn't see it coming will look back in search of foreshadowing, and there will be plenty to find, as you all know. So much so that everyone will be saying, why didn't I see that coming? Just as everyone did with the Red Wedding, which, although shocking, in hindsight was amply foreshadowed. Now, after today, you will all be in on what I consider to be this ample foreshadowing of the ice-moon apocalypse, which is indeed headed our way. All right, so we've actually been seeing this ice-moon apocalypse coming for a while now. After all, we've been talking about the dragon locked in ice for several episodes, and we've found this symbolism everywhere that ice moons are symbolized. And what's the fun of locking away a dragon in a cold prison if you're not going to wake that bad boy up at some point? What does it mean for a dragon sleeping inside the ice moon to wake up? Sounds like an explosion, right? The last time one of the moons was like an egg, it had to crack open to birth dragons. And I think that one day, the other moon, quote-unquote, will indeed crack open so that the ice dragon can wake. Now, more than anything, the dragon locked in ice is a symbol of dead John, his body growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him at the wall as Bran sees in his coma dream vision. And John, of course, is not going to stay dead. Sorry, Sir Hunts. He's going to wake up, quite possibly with the aid of magic, fire, and blood. Now, as we've covered many times, John's symbolism is that of an ice dragon and of dragonglass. So think about dragonglass for a minute. It not only represents the concept of frozen fire, like the dragon locked in ice, growing cold, but also the potential for that fire to be reborn, because Quave speaks of waking fire from dragonglass. So dead and frozen John, with his corpse likely to be stored in an ice cell of the wall, is the dragon locked in ice, and he's most strongly symbolized by dragonglass, and accordingly, his resurrection can be thought of as that dragon locked in ice, waking in fire. So we have these parallel symbols. A moon with a frozen dragon inside that needs to wake, and John as a frozen dragon inside the wall. The wall parallels the ice moon, if anything does, something that we'll explore in detail today. And thus, we can see that John waking from his deathly slumber is symbolically parallel to the idea of the ice moon cracking open. If Danny played the role of the fire moon that cracks open to birth dragons at the alchemical wedding, then John is kind of like the frozen dragon inside the ice moon waiting to hatch. And we're gonna see that symbolism depicted in a myriad of clever ways today. Now, we left off the last episode with a great ice moon apocalypse foreshadowing, the burning of the whited Night's Watch Ranger named Othor in Mormon's chambers. Now, the mechanics here are simple. Othor is described as having the standard blue star eyes of all whites and white walkers, and most notably, a moon face in this line.
0: The hooded man lifted his pale moon face and John slashed at it without hesitation. The sword laid the intruder open to the bone, taking off half his nose and opening a gash cheek to cheek under those eyes, 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 like blue stars burning.
1: So here we can see clear crack across the face of the moon's symbolism, with the sword being like a comet. Now this could be either the original Blackfire Moon meteor becoming embedded in the ice or it could be a depiction of the comet that is hypothetically coming to hit the ice moon in the future, because they're largely parallel events. They both involve flying space rocks slamming into the ice moon. Now, I believe that this John slashing the white across the face would be the initial strike, as there's a more explosive event coming in just a minute. But either way, we can easily see the basic idea of what's happening. Martin is showing us a moon-faced man full of ice magic energy... Getting slashed across the face with a sword. And the man wielding the sword is one of our flaming sword heroes. Now the more important part comes with the burning of the Ice Moon Man, where the fire had caught in the dead man's clothing and consumed him, as if his flesh were candle wax and his bones old dry wood. And its face was surrounded by a nimbus of fire, hair blazing like straw. These quotes basically merge the Wicker Man, King of Winter symbolism, with the Ice Moon Face symbol, and in the form of an undead knight's watchman And of course this has Jon written all over it As he's a king of winter figure And a knight's watchman who is dead And symbolically trapped in the ice moon After he dies at the end of A Dance with Dragons Now of course Jon later sees the whited Othor Wearing Ned's face in his dream Which further cements Othor as playing a symbolic king of winter stark role If John wakes through some sort of fire magic ritual, then he will be mirroring his brother Othor, and I think something like that could definitely happen. The thing is, this scene isn't just showing us foreshadowing of frozen John waking in fire, it's also showing us a disaster involving the actual moon in the sky. I'm pretty sure. I mean, you don't leave a crack across a star-eyed moon face and expect us not to think about astronomy in this story. Indeed, in this same A Game of Thrones chapter, Othor's frozen moon face gives us some great ice moon apocalypse foreshadowing as it tries to kill Jon. Its face was against his own, filling the world. Frost covered its eyes, sparkling blue. Now when the ice moon is, quote, filling the world, I think that's a bad sign. It sounds like a moon, or a moon meteor perhaps, falling like a blue star, rapidly getting closer to the world and filling up the sky. And, of course, this all happens after he is slashed across the face with a sword. Now, you may recall that there is a parallel scene to this one, and it's the scene, of course, with Sam fighting in ice white, just like John was, and the language is much the same. The world shrank to two blue stars, a terrible crushing pain, and a cold so fierce that his tears froze over his eyes. Small Paul's face isn't called a moon face here, but this quote reads exactly like John's does, as a description of blue stars getting closer and closer and filling up the sky. And like John, Sam sets the white on fire. And you'll even notice that Sam has ice eyes in this scene. That's one I missed last time. Samuel Ice Eyes, the Slayer. He's also got puffs of frost exploding from his mouth in this scene, which makes him sound kind of like an ice dragon breathing cold. Hat tip to Archmaester Emma. For catching that one. Thanks, Emma. Anyways, I've quoted a little snippet of the scene in the last episode because Small Paul had a snowbeard. Uh, but I've been saving this entire quote for just this moment. Now, this will have the most impact if you've listened to Weirdwood Compendium 4 in A Grove of Ash. But if you haven't, the basic idea here is that Melisandra speaks of Azor Ahai's rebirth by saying, "...even an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze." And there are a whole series of scenes where an ember in the ashes of a fire is functioning as a symbol of Zor High inside the weirwood net awaiting rebirth. Now, weirwoods are modeled after Yggdrasil of Norse myth, which is believed to be an ash tree. So the idea of a fiery thing or person being in the ashes is also a clever bit of wordplay about a fiery person being inside an ash tree, which in A Song of Ice and Fire means inside the weirwood. So with that said, here is Sam burning the white.
0: His fumbling fingers finally found the dagger, but when he slammed it up into the White's belly, the point skidded off the iron links and the blade went spinning from Sam's hand. Small Paul's fingers tightened inexorably and began to twist. He's going to rip my head off, Sam thought in despair. His throat felt frozen, his lungs on fire. He punched and pulled at the White's wrist to no avail. He kicked Paul between the legs uselessly. The world shrank to two blue stars, a terrible crushing pain, and a cold so fierce that his tears froze over his eyes. Sam squirmed and pulled, desperate, and then he lurched forward. Small Paul was big and powerful, but Sam still outweighed him, and the whites were clumsy. He had seen that on the fist. The sudden shift sent Paul staggering back a step, and the living man and the dead one went crashing down together. The impact knocked one hand from Sam's throat and he was able to suck in a quick breath of air before the icy black fingers returned. The taste of blood filled his mouth. He twisted his neck around, looking for his knife, and saw a dull orange glow—the fire! Only ember and ashes remained, but still, he could not breathe or think. Sam wrenched himself sideways, pulling Paul with him, his arms flailed against the dirt floor. Groping, reaching, scattering the ashes until at last they found something hot. A chunk of charred wood, smoldering red and orange within the black. His fingers closed around it and he smashed it into Paul's mouth so hard he felt teeth shatter. Yet, even so, the white's grip did not loosen. Sam's last thoughts were for the mother who had loved him and the father he had failed. The long haul was spinning around him when he saw the wisp of smoke rising from between Paul's broken teeth. Then the dead man's face burst into flame, and the hands were gone. Sam sucked in air and rolled feebly away. The white was burning, hoarfrost dripping from his beard as the flesh beneath blackened. Sam heard the raven shriek, but Paul himself made no sound. When his mouth opened, only flames came out. And his eyes, it's gone. The blue glow is gone. All right, thank you, Quinn. That was a lovely reading.
1: In any case, um, both Sam and John's white fighting scenes also involve the same one-two sequence. John and Sam first stab the white ineffectively, John with his sword, and Sam with his dragon glass knife, and then they both have to turn to fire as a second, more effective weapon. With Sam even thinking and reaching for his knife as he grabs the ember to shove in Paul's mouth. Now, in my estimation, this is depicting the two strikes on the ice moon. The first bit of fire moon meteor shrapnel that would have hit the ice moon in the ancient past, and, of course, the more spectacular ice moon apocalypse to come. The charcoal that Sam picks up, red and orange smoldering within the black, seems like a pretty terrific red comet symbol, of course. And, as I mentioned, the ember in the ashes motif is trademark rebirth of Azor High language. So, in both scenes, we have a dead Knight's Watchman held prisoner by the blue ice magic of the others first, Othor and now Small Paul. And in both cases, they're set free by a heroic Knight's Watchman wielding fire. Just as I said that Othor actually symbolizes John, the same would be true for Small Paul here. And again, I'll point out the hoarfrost dripping from his beard language, which makes him a snowbeard figure. Now, as you recall from the Eldrick Shadow Chaser episode, all of the Snowbeard figures have heavy parallels to John. Most importantly, the Ember in the Ashes does indeed spark a great blaze here in Small Paul, and it represents the rebirth of Azor High from the Ember in the Ashes, just as Melisandre says. Again, we should think of John coming back to life as Azor High reborn, emerging from his icy prison in a display of fire, but only when, quote, the world shrinks to two blue stars, or, when a star-eyed moon face fills the world thus we can see another layer of the Carthian prophecy About the other moon one day kissing the sun too And the dragons returning The moon meteor dragons will return, yes But so will Jon, the ice dragon After all, in terms of symbolism These are parallel events And that's kind of the theme of this episode So this leaves us in the ultimate sweet spot For analyzing A Song of Ice and Fire The intersection of awesome world building And the heart and conflict The blood of the other series has been very personal so far, very much focused on the many characters who fit this stolen other archetype. But now it's led us to an episode about the potential for a hashtag Ice Moon Apocalypse take a shot. That's about as far away from the heart in conflict as possible. We're literally out in space talking about magical flying hunks of rock. But of course, that's the beauty of mythical astronomy. The flying hunks of magic space rock always parallel the humans and their hearts in conflict. So here's what we'll do today. We're going to look at the two most important symbols of the ice moon, Winterfell and the Wall. As we visit these places, we'll be simultaneously comparing them to John and the ice moon. It's the same thing we did when we went to the Wolf's Den at White Harbor with Davos. And indeed, Winterfell and the Wolf's Den have many parallels, as we're about to see. Uh, First of all, I must apologize to all my new patrons that have signed up in the last month. I told everyone that I was going to make the new nicknames and read them today. However, uh, yesterday was crazy, and this morning was a disaster. So if you have signed up in the last month, you will be hearing your name on the next episode. Or perhaps even I'll get you in the Q&A live stream next weekend to follow up on this one. So today I'm going to read some of my classic patron names, and know that I love and appreciate you all. So with that said... Hell Locked in Winter. This section is brought to you by our Long Night's Watch patrons. Sharon Ice Eyes, Dread Ferryman of the North, wielder of the Staff of the Old Gods, a weird staff, banded in Valyrian steel. And Synxia, Frozen Fire Queen of the Summer Snows and Burner of Winter's Wick. Antonius the Conspirator, the Red Right Hand of R'hllor, Knower of the Unknowable, Dispenser of Final Justice. And blue raven of the lightning peck, the frozen thunderbolt, whose words are, the way must be tried. So, John is the epitome of the dragon locked in ice, symbolized as a person, and Winterfell is the epitome of the dragon locked in ice as a place. It's like the wolf's den, only better. Winterfell being the wolf's den of all wolf's dens, naturally. Just look at this place. Winterfell Castle is a hunk of dark stone, surrounded by white snow. And this image is mirrored in their sigil, a gray direwolf on an ice-white field. A direwolf locked in ice. You better believe it. And we'll talk about the symbolism of the direwolves in a moment, but there's actually extensive symbolism of a dragon locked in ice at Winterfell as well. Let's talk about the locked-in part first, that is, the prison symbolism. Just as the wolf's den is a prison, Winterfell is described as, quote, a gray stone labyrinth. Language which also implies the labyrinth of Greek mythology, which was a prison for the Minotaur or Minotaur. Winterfell is also described as a monstrous stone tree, which also implies the Weirwoods, which are prisons and traps, aka weirs, for greenseers and whose bark turns to stone, so stone tree. Similarly, the Wolf's Den is a prison too and one that also has weirwood symbolism, such as the fact that it contains the Castle Godswood with its fat and angry heart tree, and also the fact that the jailer in the prison is, of course, a twisted dude named Garth. Back in Winterfell, in A Clash of Kings, a now-crippled Bran sits at the window seat of his chambers and thinks,
0: Bran preferred the hard stone of the window seat to the comforts of his feather bed and blankets, a bed the walls pressed close and the ceiling hung heavy above him. A bed, the room was his cell, and Winterfell his prison.
1: So it's not just Bran's prison, of course. Recall this famous line from Ned and Robert's scene in the Winterfell crypts in A Game of Thrones.
0: By ancient custom, an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been the lord of Winterfell, to keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. The oldest had long ago rusted away to nothing, leaving only a few red stains where the meadow had rested on stone. Ned wondered if that meant those ghosts were free to roam the castle now. He hoped not. The first lords of Winterfell had been men hard as the land they ruled. In the centuries before the dragon lords came over the sea, they had sworn allegiance to no man, styling themselves the kings in the north. So you can take your
1: pick as to who the Minotaur is. Is it the vengeful spirits of the dead kings of Winter? Or the crippled little boy who just so happens to be the most powerful seer in God knows how long? That question aside, you can see that Winterfell is definitely implied as a prison, just like the Wolf's Den. Ultimately, both fortresses represent the hunk of dark firemoon rock imprisoned in the ice moon, and so are imprisoned themselves. The Wolf's Den is surrounded by the newer city of White Harbor, and Winterfell is surrounded by miles and miles of frequently frozen north. So that's the locked part of the dragon locked in ice, the prison symbolism. How about the dragon symbolism? Well, so glad you asked, my friend, so glad you asked. It begins with thinking about the overall temperature of the Starks, symbolically. Are they ice people or fire people? This question is addressed directly in Catelyn's first chapter of A Game of Thrones, when she and Ned discuss the hot springs, one of the very best bits of Winterfell
0: symbolism. Of all the rooms in Winterfell's great keep, Catelyn's bedchambers were the hottest. She seldom had to light a fire. The castle had been built over natural hot springs, and the scalding waters rushed through its walls and chambers like blood through a man's body, driving the chill from the stone halls, filling the glass gardens with a moist warmth, keeping the earth from freezing. Open pools smoked day and night in a dozen small courtyards. That was a little thing in summer. In winter, it was the difference between life and death. Catelyn's bath was always hot and steaming, and her walls warm to the touch. The warmth reminded her of River Run, of days in the sun with Lysa and Edmure. But Ned could never abide the heat. The Starks were made for the cold, he would tell her, and she would laugh and tell him in that case they had certainly built their castle in the wrong place.
1: Suddenly, the familiar hot springs have a whole new layer of meaning to them, huh? Winterfell is not just a hunk of dark stone surrounded by miles and miles of snow. It's a heated hunk of dark stone surrounded by miles and miles of snow. Which is starting to sound pretty dragon and nice to me. Winterfell is presented to us as having a circulatory system. And we can't fail to notice that it's driving the chill from the stone halls. Like Davos and shadow chaser driving or chasing the shadows and the chill from their respective stone halls. Now, according to the blood of the other theory, the Starks of Winterfell descend from this shadow Shadowchaser figure who represents the stolen other baby turned Stark. So this bit about the bloodstream of Winterfell driving the chill away reads a lot like a metaphor for the blood of Winterfell being that of Eldric shadow-chaser, which it is. Now, whether that's an intentional metaphor or not, it's really the theme and the function that's important. For thousands of years, Winterfell has acted as a bulwark against the winter precisely because it has a source of heat. The Starks might be made for the cold, as Ned says, but their real significance is that they occupy a castle that will stay warm and habitable even in the coldest of winters. That's what's so funny about Catlin joking the Starks built their castle in the wrong place. It's just the opposite. I don't think that most people actually really appreciate the fact that during a Westerosi winter... Winterfell is basically Siberia. It's close to the equivalent of the Arctic Circle, much farther north than any part of Essos. And I'm sure that most of you have probably never seen 40-foot snowdrifts or even 10-foot snowdrifts, although I do have a couple of patrons from Finland and Canada, so shout out you guys and leave me a good 40-foot snowdrift story if you have one. Point being, those hot springs are the obvious reason why you'd want to build a castle there. And certainly they are the main factor in the endurance of Winterfell and House Stark over the millennia. They're made for the cold and that they were smart enough to build their castle over a network of hot springs. That's really the deal. In fact, it's not just the hot springs. We know that the Starks are actually made to resist the cold on a deeper, more symbolic and magical level. The crown of the King of Winter speaks of the Stark mission, as you recall from many past episodes. We see this crown on Rob's head in A Clash of Kings, and it's specifically said to be made from bronze and iron because those metals are dark and strong to fight the cold. And shout out to Tony Teflon, who made me aware that copper and bronze actually do get stronger the colder that they get. So this business about bronze being a metal that is strong to fight the cold is actually not just poetry. Now Rob's the uh, the King of Winter Crown is surmounted by nine miniature black iron swords, which remind us of all the other black swords in the story—Valyrian steel swords such as Ned wields, and the dragon glass knives such as the Night's Watch are supposed to wield. Thus, we can see that the Starks are meant to fight the cold, just like the Night's Watch, and they're apparently supposed to do it with black swords and knives, just like the Night's Watch, whose ideal weapons are dragon glass and Valyrian steel or dragon steel if you can get it. Think of Ned with Black Ice, John with Longclaw, our buddy Barth Blacksword, who also wielded Black Ice, the Black Iron Swords in the laps of the Stone Kings of Winter, Ned's Six Grey Wraiths with Shadow Swords at the Tower of Joy facing off against the Snow White Kingsguard Knights. So here is the icy house Stark living on a geothermal hotspot, an oasis of warmth amidst the cold, and they're carrying on a tradition of Black Swords and fighting the cold and maintaining a millennia-old alliance with the Night's Watch, who also fights the cold with dragonglass or dragon steel. Winterfell itself is a hunk of dark stone surrounded by snow, and it's warm to the touch. It has hot water like blood, which actually makes it kind of a bloodstone in the symbolic sense. I mean, that's what it symbolizes anyway, a piece of x moon turned moon meteor and crash-landed in the snow. Imagine Winterfell as a meteor that got locked in the ice, but which retains a heart of fire like a sleeping dragon or like my boy Jon Snow. Now there's a great quote from the World of Ice and Fire about the hot springs, which actually brings up the topic of
0: dragons. Hot springs, such as the one beneath Winterfell, have been shown to be heated by the furnaces of the world, the same fires that made the 14 flames or the smoking mountain of Dragonstone. Yet the small folk of Winterfell and the Wintertown have been known to claim that the springs are heated by the breath of a dragon that sleeps beneath the castle This is even more foolish than Mushroom's claims, and need not be given any consideration.
1: Uh, So, you know, here we are. There's a dragon sleeping under the castle. I mean, it's almost like I saw that coming, right? Winterfell is compared to Valeria as a place with access to the furnaces of the world, and indeed, that's quite true. Score one for maesterly science. They figured out that hot springs and volcanoes are like geothermal cousins. Good job, maesters. There's almost certainly not an actual sleeping dragon beneath Winterfell, but it is true that if some ancient dragon lord had to pick a place to serve as an outpost or even a home in the north, they would pick Winterfell, absolutely. And maybe that's what happened. Winterfell is a geothermal hotspot, and it even has caverns. This is what lends a scrap of credibility to the rumors of Vermax laying eggs at Winterfell while Prince Jasseris Targaryen parlayed with Cregan Stark during the Dance of the Dragons. It's just the kind of place a pregnant dragon would find cozy if it could find a way down there. The oldest part of Winterfell, the First Keep, even has gargoyles like Dragonstone. I mean, it's a total giveaway as a dragonlord type of place. Seriously, though, I do wonder about the gargoyles. I mean, they're extremely rare in Westeros. They're found here on the First Keep, on Dragonstone, and um, Coldmoat in Dunkin' Egg weirdly has gargoyles, and that's it. In any case... The small folk has certainly served us up quite the dragon-locked-and-ice metaphor in the form of the rumors about a sleeping dragon warming the castle. That funny little folk tale is really terrific as a metaphor. The dragon is sleeping and radiating warmth amidst the frozen north. Winterfell has a circulatory system, and its blood is warmed by a dragon. It practically screams, blood of the dragon lives here. More specifically, it's said to be a sleeping dragon beneath Winterfell, and if he should ever wake.
0: He padded over dry needles and brown leaves, to the edge of the wood, where the pines grew thin. Beyond the open fields he could see the great piles of man-rock, stark against the swirling flames. The wind blew hot and rich with the smell of blood, and burnt meat, so strong he began to slaver. Yet as one smell drew them onward, others warned them back. He sniffed at the drifting smoke. Men. Many men. Many horses. And fire, fire, fire. No smell was more dangerous. Not even the hard, cold smell of iron. The stuff of man claws and hard skin. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes. And in the sky, he saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth. But then the snake was gone. Behind the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. All through the night the fires crackled, and once there was a great roar and a crash that made the earth jump under his feet.
1: Hopefully you guys saw that quote coming. And hopefully you also remember Osha saying, We made enough noise to wake a dragon when they emerged from the crypts. In the lead-up to that quote, Winterfell is described as a shell. And quite frankly, it really does sound like a dragon hatched from inside the first keep, the one with the
0: gargoyles. The sky was a pale gray, and smoke eddied all around them. They stood in the shadow of the first keep, or what remained of it. One side of the building had torn loose and fallen away. Stone and shattered gargoyles lay strewn across the yard. They fell just where I did, Bran thought when he saw them. Some of the gargoyles had broken into so many pieces, it made him wonder how he was alive at all. Nearby some crows were pecking at a body, crushed beneath the tumbled stone, but he lay face down, and Bran could not say who he was. The first keep had not been used for many hundreds of years, but now it was more of a shell than ever. The floors had burned inside it, and all the beams. So it's a burned-out shell,
1: and this is complimented by John in A Dance with Dragons, who says the castle is a shell. Uh, so Theon calls the castle a shell too and he does it while standing in the very spot that Bran did in the last quote. Like Bran, Theon also remarks that this is where Bran fell, and notices the shattered gargoyles, who are by then locked in ice and snow. Point being, calling Winterfell a shell over and over again sure seems to enhance all the talk about dragons, and dragon eggs beneath Winterfell, and the fiery-winged serpent appearing to fly overhead when Winterfell is burned. Now, Summer and Bran probably didn't see a real dragon hatching from the first keep, even though the line about making enough noise to wake a dragon sure is tantalizing. Nevertheless, I'm sure you can see what I'm driving at here in terms of symbolism. The dragon locked in ice must eventually break free, just as John must eventually be resurrected, and I think that is one of the things being depicted by all this Winterfell dragon and shell symbolism. There's also a clue about the Winterfell dragon becoming locked in ice in the first place in the quotes that we just referred to. Now, as we've said in previous episodes like Tyrion Targaryen and a Burning Brandon, both Fallen Bran and the Fallen Gargoyles, which have red fiery eyes in Bran's Nightmare, represent Fallen Fire Moon Meteors. Both are depicted as landing in the ice. Theon sees the gargoyles covered in snow in the quote we just mentioned. Um, While Bran is in his coma nightmare, he's falling towards icy spires, which have other impaled dreamers on them. As I've said a few times now, I think that being inside the weirwood net or inside the dream realm is often made synonymous with being locked in ice. Think of Jon's spirit wandering the bardo while his cold body is temporarily dead and locked inside the ice of the wall, for example. And so in that sense... Bran was locked in the ice after he fell and slipped into his coma. In other words, both Broken Bran and the fallen gargoyles lying at the foot of the First Keep represent fire-moon meteors locked in ice, and are in effect synonymous with the castle of Winterfell itself, a heated hunk of dark gray stone surrounded by all that snow. That is one layer of the meaning of the famous last line of A Clash of Kings, which compares Broken Bran to Broken Winterfell.
0: It was not dead, just broken, like me, he thought. I'm not dead either.
1: Um, So Bran's fall shows us symbolically the Winterfell dragon becoming locked in ice, and the awakening of this dragon from the ice is symbolized by Bran awakening from his coma with his forehead burning from where the three-eyed crow had pecked it. In order to escape the coma, Bran even has to do a little bit of dream flying, just like a dragon breaking out of the ice. Now, that was the beginning of the opening of Bran's third eye, and I say that it symbolically corresponds to the awakening of the Winterfell dragon. And guess what? The next step in Bran's third eye opening is the scene where Bran's skin changes summer and sees the great-winged snake whose roar was a river of flame flying over Winterfell. And then right after seeing it, he comes back to his broken Bran body in the crypts, and it says, "...here in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened." In other words, we're being shown that Bran's third eye opening directly corresponds with the symbolic idea of the Winterfell dragon awakening in fire, and I think this is because the Winterfell dragon represents both John and Bran. John, in a more literal sense, since he's actually part Targaryen and needs actual resurrection, and Bran in a more symbolic sense as the bearer of the fire of the gods who is opening his third eye. Now, in terms of R plus L equals J... Most people would agree that every clue about dragons sleeping beneath Winterfell or dragon eggs beneath Winterfell ultimately symbolizes Jon's hidden dragon heritage, a secret whose reveal will surely involve some sort of freaky scene with Jon's spirit finally completing his recurring crypt dream and reaching the lower levels of the crypts, where he will see the ghost of Edric Snowbeard riding a dream dragon and playing Rhaegar's harp while drinking spirit mead from an eight-foot horn graven with runes, or something equally stupendous. Now, I know we're all looking forward to that payoff, aren't you, Quinn? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, speaking of Jon's resurrection and rebirth from the Winterfell crypts, take note of the Starks' being born symbolism in the following quote as Bran and Rickon emerge from the crypts with Hodor and Osha and Mira and Jojen after the burning of Winterfell. After Hodor opens the door, it says...
0: Osha poked her spear through and slid out after it, and Rickon squirmed through Mira's legs to follow. Hodor shoved the door open all the way and stepped to the surface. The reeds had to carry Bran up the last few steps. So
1: Rickon squirms through Mira's legs as though she has just given birth to him, and Bran has to be carried like a baby as they emerge from the crypts and back into the land of the living. Now who wants to bet against John's spirit making a visit to the crypts before he's reborn into the land of the living? Not me. The opening of this door to the crypts is what Osha refers to as having made enough noise to wake a dragon, and it happens while the birth of Starks is being depicted. So, this is a terrific way to foreshadow a dragon Stark being born from the crypts, which can only refer to Jon's resurrection. I mean, yikes. The opening of the door to the Stark crypts makes a noise to wake a dragon, and that kind of speaks for itself, in my opinion. Uh, except for that it doesn't speak for itself. It needs a two-hour essay uh, framing it, but whatever. In terms of the blood of the other theory that Night's King was a dragon-blooded person and that the Starks descend from one of his sons who wasn't turned into a full other, I'm sure you can see what's happening here. All of these clues that imply a dragon under Winterfell, which work as evidence for Jon's dragonlord heritage, can also be seen to be working to tell the hypothetical truth about the Starks being frozen dragonlords. By virtue of their descent from Knights King and Queen. Perhaps that's why John's dragon blood secret is hidden in the crypts, because it doesn't just apply to John, but actually all of House Stark. Winterfell and House Stark represent the dragon locked in ice, the fire inside the heart of the ice moon, just as they are an oasis of heat in the icy north. This truth is part of their fundamental nature, and it's built into their castle and their symbolism from the very first time we saw Ned cleaning a Valyrian steel sword amidst the hot pools of the godswood. Not very icy. In terms of astronomy symbolism, the message of Winterfell dragon symbolism is clear. If Winterfell represents the ice moon, or more specifically the hunk of fiery stone trapped inside the ice moon, it's very like a sleeping dragon waiting to explode in fire. Its dark stone is like a shell containing a sleeping dragon, until it doesn't. Ramsey Bolton is the one who set Winterfell on fire and woke the sleeping dragon, and of course, Ramsey's primary symbolism is that of a knight's king and a bloodstone emperor figure, just the sort of guy to provoke a moon disaster. <laughs> the fire wolves of Hell. This section is dedicated to some of our Guardians of the Galaxy patrons. Sir Imriel Jourdain of the Tor, Spinner of the Great Wheel, and Guardian of the Sword of the Morning. Sir Harrison of House Casterly, the Noontide Sun, whose words are, Deeper than ever did plummet sound, Guardian of the shadow cat. Lady Diana, the Ghost Huntress, Pursuer of Truth, and Guardian of the King's Crown and the Cradle. And memo the Poem on Two Feet, Mother of Muses, Writer of the Dragon Saga, and Guardian of the swan. So, another way that the fiery dragon heritage of House Stark is depicted as something that belongs to all of House Stark, and not just Jon, is the direwolves, the sigil of their house. Why do I say that? Well, basically, everything about the direwolves implies them as fiery hellhounds. My favorite example of this is the scene where Shaggy and Rickon hide in the crypts after Lewin's death, only to have Shaggy jump out, bite Maester Lewin, and then fight with Summer. The line there was, Bran saw eyes like green fire, a flash of teeth fur as black as the pit around them. Now Cerberus, the original hellhound of Greek mythology, acts as a guardian of the underworld, as do all of the stone direwolves that sit beside the stone kings of winter. And Shaggy Dog is basically bringing that symbolism to life in the scene. In other words, I'm calling the direwolves hellhounds not only because uh, they tend to have eyes of fire as we're about to see, but because of the Cerberus role that they play guarding the underworld alongside the Hades-like kings of winter in the crypts. The fact that George seems to have borrowed the three-headed aspect of Cerberus for the Targaryen three-headed dragon makes this connection even more intriguing. Said another way, both the direwolf of Stark and the three-headed dragon of House Targaryen are symbolic offspring of Cerberus. There are actually many comparisons to be made between the crypts of Winterfell with their stone kings and the hidden chambers beneath the Red Keep with those dragon skulls. And Arya actually makes the comparison explicit when she's lost beneath the Red Keep in the Dragon Skull room, as a matter of fact. But that's a bit of a detour. Or it can be fun homework. Read a couple of the scenes down in the Winterfell crypts, and then read Arya's two chapters beneath the Red Keep in A Game of Thrones. You'll find spiral staircases leading down, dead things with eyes that follow you, and a lot of the same imagery and symbolism. Bottom line, they are both Hades-style underworld settings, once more highlighting the fact that the three-headed dragon of Targaryen and the dire wolf of Stark are both symbolic children of Cerberus, the hellhound. As for that fiery wolf symbolism, well, let's take a look into the eyes of the dire wolves, which are consistently described in fiery language. Ghost has eyes, which are described variously as hot red eyes, two great red suns, and eyes that glowed red and baleful. Lady has bright golden eyes. Shaggy has eyes burning like green fire and eyes that were green fire. Summer has eyes smoldering like liquid gold. And after making a kill, it says his muzzle was wet and red, but his eyes burned. Grey Wind has eyes like molten gold. And Theon's nightmare of dead Rob and Grey Wind says Grey Wind stalked beside eyes burning and man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Arya's wolf Nymeria had yellow eyes. When they caught the sunlight, they gleamed like two golden coins. And golden coins are dragons in Westeros, so there's a subtle suggestion of dragon eyes here. So, the direwolves have eyes of fire. That's well established. What goes well with fire? Smoke, of course. And in the case of the long night, darkness caused by smoke. And that's what we see in the fur of the direwolves. Jon says in A Game of Thrones that, except in ghosts... All the other wolves are all dark, gray or black in terms of fur. So we can see them all as being dark. Summer has fur like silver smoke, while gray wind is described as smoke dark, the same phrase used to describe Valerian steel and Ned's ice. A gray wind is a smoky wind anyway, so both Valerian steel and dark smoke is implied here in gray wind's name. Getting darker still, we saw that Shaggy's fur was as black as the pit. Went down in the crypts, which reminds us of Drogon being as black as night, and of the underworld realm in general, which is where you'd expect to find the pit. Another similarity to Drogon is found when Arya skin changes Nymeria and leads the great wolf pack and calls herself the Night Wolf. Nymeria herself is described by a commoner in the Riverlands as a she wolf, a bitch from the seventh hell. So, eyes like fire, fur like smoke and darkness in the pit. Guardians of Hell symbolism. These aren't direwolves, they're firewolves. There's nothing remotely icy or cold about them or their symbolism, not even once. The cherry on top is Theon's nightmare vision of Rickon and Bran, merged with their direwolves like the wolfish versions of Valyrian Sphinxes.
0: Mercy, he sobbed. From behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy, when he glanced back over his shoulder. He saw them coming, great wolves the size of horses, with the heads of small children. Oh, mercy, mercy! Blood dripped from their mouths black as pitch, burning holes in the snow where it fell. Every stride brought them closer. Theon tried to run faster, but his legs would not obey. The trees all had faces, and they were laughing at him. Laughing and the howl came again. He could smell the hot breath of the beast behind him, a stink of brimstone and corruption.
1: Burning black blood is something that we see with Drogon and Melisandre and Beric, all creatures who are fire-made flesh in a very real sense. The dream firewolves with the heads of children also stink of brimstone, which is signature dragon language that compares very well to scenes with the dragons underneath the Great Pyramid of Marine. I compared them to Valerian Sphinxes, because Valerian Sphinxes have the bodies of dragons and the heads of people, in case you're wondering. So there you have it. It's not just a matter of dragon symbolism hidden at Winterfell. We've got a whole pack of fiery hellhounds lurking about. They may be surrounded by snow and ice, but they are guarding the entrance to the hell that is Winterfell. There's a great line in A Game of Thrones which kind of sums this up.
0: Eddard Stark dreamed of a frozen hell reserved for the Starks of Winterfell.
1: The North is a frozen hell. Cersei famously tells Ned she'll allow him to live out your days in the grey waste you call home, if he will bend the knee to Joffrey, for example. But the wolves sent there are fiery ones. Fiery wolves in the frozen hell. This is just another version of dragon-locked-in-ice symbolism. Therefore, I would say that the Firewolf motif simply augments the Starks as Frozen Dragonlord's idea and shows that it's not just Jon bringing the brimstone stink to Winterfell, but all of House Stark. Stinks. Brimstone really does stink. Sulfur's nasty. George would seem to be referencing Dante's Inferno with this line also. And again, when he has Barristan say that half the hells are made of flame in A Dance with Dragons, which implies that the other half of the hells are made of ice. And icy hell is exactly what Dante finds at the center of the ninth circle of hell, Cositus or Cocytus, Cocytus. because Coss- Let's go with Cocytus. In any case, it's a big frozen lake at the center of the ninth circle of hell, and you are not going to believe who we find trapped in the ice, literally locked in the ice, at the center of this frozen lake in hell. That's right, it's none other than our buddy Lucifer, whom Dante has conflated with the devil. He's depicted as a giant winged beast, and he's literally trapped waist-deep in the frozen lake. So perhaps we should say a frozen hell reserved for Starks and Lucifer. What does this say about the Starks, I wonder? Well, probably that they are descended from Azor High and the Night's King, the Lucifer figures of A Song of Ice and Fire. This observation was made by our good friend and frequent contributor, drink, 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 ravenous reader. And this is almost certainly the place where George first got the seeds for the concept of the dragon locked in ice. Or at least we can say that this detail from Dante's Inferno was surely playing in George's mind when he conceived the idea. Lucifer must, of course, be freed from the frozen lake in time for Armageddon. And similarly, John will be breaking out of the ice in time for the new long night. And the breaking out of the ice in the sky of the ice moon will trigger Armageddon. So it's all very copacetic. So, from sleeping dragons, to dragon eggs, to hot springs like blood, to fiery hellhound wolves, and right down to the concept of a frozen hell to trap Lucifer, Winterfell is basically constructed as a demonstration of all the dragon-locked-in-ice symbolism, as I told you about 30 minutes ago. And it's not just dragon-locked-in-ice and firewolf-locked-in-ice symbolism being depicted, but the reawakening of that sleeping monster, the Minotaur, who's implied as being inside Winterfell's labyrinthine walls. That story is told by Winterfell's burning, when winged snakes and burning brandons emerge from the shell of Winterfell, and it will be told again when Jon's resurrection path loops through the Winterfell crypts, as it surely must. As I mentioned at the top, it's the same story told by Jon's dream of a moon-faced, ice-whited Ned Stark, exploding in a nimbus of flame like a burning wicker man. And do you know what other story all of this symbolism tells? Why? That would be the impending... Moon disaster involving the ice moon, of course. The moon was an egg, Khaleesi, but Winterfell is a broken shell from which dragons hatch, and oh gosh, that matches the moon myth pretty well. How's the rest of that one go? One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and the dragons will return, I believe it is. As it happens, Winterfell is not the only ice moon place that seems destined to have some kind of dragon awakening event. (laughs) End of the world, and we know it. This section goes out to more of our Guardians of the Galaxy patrons. Nienna the Wise, the Persephoenix, Guardian of the Ice Dragon, whose words are from sorrow wisdom. Daphne Eversweet, Queen Bee of the Red Poppy Fields, Guardian of the Crown's Lantern, and Keeper of the Black Rabbit with big, pointy, nasty teeth who can leap about. And Manami of the Jade Sea, the Merry Deviant, Keeper of Winter Roses, and Guardian of the Celestial Ghost. I've said many times that all Ice Moon symbols, be they persons, places, or things, contain Dragon Locked in Ice symbolism, and at the end of the Ned episode I mentioned that most Ice Moon people and places have symbolic hints about the impending Ice Moon disaster. This is because the impending Ice Moon disaster is akin to the Dragon Locked in Ice Awakening, and every place that shows the dragon locked in ice hints at an awakening, usually a violent or dramatic one. We just saw it at Winterfell. George literally blew up the first keep, had Bran see a fiery-winged snake, and then dropped into line about making enough noise to wake a dragon when the Starks reemerge from the crypts. Who knows what else will happen at Winterfell before the story is complete. Stannis was going there with his Lightbringer last time I checked. Is, is he still stuck out there in the snow, by the way? I'll have to ask Fish. Must be getting cold out there. Uh, Beyond the walls of Winterfell, one of the best and most direct symbols of the ice moon is the Heart of Winter. It's the place that represents the promise of a new long night in Bran's coma dream as he looks past the curtain of light and into the Heart of Winter, terrified, while Bloodraven whispers, now you know why you must live in his ear. Symbolically, if not literally, this is where the Others come from, and we all know that A, we haven't seen anything close to a full-on invasion of the Others yet, and that B, We can surely look forward to seeing it soon. An invasion of blue star-eyed others is akin to an invasion of cold stars, which is basically what I'm predicting will happen in the sky to kick off the new long night. So we'll have actual cold falling stars that lead to an invasion of symbolic cold stars. Therefore, we can say that the heart of winter, as a proper ice moon symbol, is clearly promising a symbolic meteor shower that will come with a long winter. Then we have the Erie, a prominent ice-moon symbol. The Erie is an impregnable castle of white marble high up on a snow-covered mountain holding a ton of frozen ice and snow. But there is some foreshadowing regarding that mountain called the Giant's Lance, which suggests an avalanche may be in the cards. Now, we are going to do an entire episode dedicated to the Eyrie, I promise, and it's coming soon in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. But here is a sneak preview from a Catelyn chapter of A Game of Thrones.
0: The eastern sky was rose and gold as the sun broke over the Vale of Erin. Catelyn Stark watched the light spread, her hands resting on the delicate carved stone of the balustrade outside her window. Below her the world turned from black to indigo to green as dawn crept across fields and forest. Pale white mist rose off Alyssa's tears, where the ghost waters plunged over the shoulder of the mountain to begin their long tumble down the face of the giant's lance. Catelyn could feel the faint touch of spray on her face. Alyssa Arryn had seen her husband, her brother, and all her children slain, and yet in life she had never shed a tear. So in death, the gods had decreed that she would know no rest until her weeping watered the black earth of the Vale, where the men she had loved were buried. Alyssa had been dead 6,000 years now, and still no drop of the torrent had ever reached the valley floor far below.
1: We've seen tears of blood represent the fire moon meteors, so it should not surprise you to hear me say that icy tears can symbolize ice moon meteors. Think of the wall being said to weep when it melts on a sunny day. And the waterfall known as Alyssa's Tears actually does freeze in winter, as a matter of fact. On a basic level, if the moon can be seen as a face... And it makes sense to see things falling from the moon as tears. Accordingly, the cold tears that tumble down the face of the giant's lance remind us of ice moon meteor symbols in this paragraph. Namely, they remind us of the symbolic language used for the Others and the Sword Dawn. First of all, there are ghostly ice moon meteor symbols, which makes us think of the Others. And when it says pale white mist rose from the ghost waters of Ulysses' tears... Uh, We really are thinking then about the others, especially Tormund Giantsbane's line to Jon in A Dance with Dragons.
0: A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mist rise up, how do you fight a mist, Crow?
1: The others are rising white mists and ghosts. We got that. In fact, behold this awesome clue about the others that I found in A Game of Thrones, just like two days ago, that uses this same language.
0: The rising sun sent fingers of light through the pale white mist of dawn. A wide plain spread out beneath them, bare and brown, its flatness here and there relieved by long, low hummocks. Ned pointed them out to his king. The barrows of the first men. Robert frown. Have we ridden into a graveyard?
1: Uh, It is really a funny passage, um, because this passage seems to imply a connection between the others and the most ancient first men, the Barrow King in particular, who is like a deathly form of Garth the Green, whom Robert embodies. So it's kind of like Robert walking onto his own grave in terms of archetypes, which Martin is obviously playing with, here with Robert's clueless, have we ridden onto a graveyard? The other notable thing is the, of course, the Pale White Mists of Dawn language, Which is yet another example of other symbolism, appearing alongside that of Dawn. Of course, this whole scene with Cat observing the chilly ghost torrent of Alyssa's tears occurs at dawn, too. And of course, I believe the explanation is that Dawn is the original ice of House Stark drink, and was at some point the Dawn of the Others, meaning that it was possessed by Night's King. If Night's King ruled during the long night, as I suggest, then he would have stolen Dawn in the figurative sense of preventing the sun to rise. So it follows that he might have stolen Dawn the sword as well. At least that's the short version of the theory. Now The best clue about Dawn in the scene with Cat observing the tears comes from Alyssa's tears being referred to as a torrent, and then ghost waters. And another time in the same book, they're called a ghost torrent. Because the Torrentine River is the one that flows out to sea at Starfall, where Dawn resides. And since these icy tears of Alyssa's are ice-moon meteor symbols, as Dawn is, I tend to think that the torrent language is no coincidence. And of course, you recall the scene where Danny dreams of refighting the Battle of the Trident on Dragonback, using Dragonfire to melt ice-armored enemies who turned the Trident into a torrent. So, these ice-armored enemies, melted by Danny's dragon fire, have always been taken to represent others, of course. So, once again, we have the association between torrential waters and ice-moon symbols, just as we do with Alyssa's tears. And remember, he uses the torrent word twice to describe the tears. So, again, I think it's intentional. Why? Because dawn is the original ice. And because dawn, the others and rivers that flow from melting ice are all ice-moon meteor symbols. Now, the thing that uh, takes all these ice moon meteor symbols and makes them foreboding is the prophecy aspect of the Alyssa legend. Alyssa's ghost will know no rest until her waterfall hits the ground. What's implied here is that one day that might happen, that her tears might actually reach the ground, meaning one day ice moon meteors will reach the ground too, and then perhaps Night's Queen can be content. I don't know. Maybe all the Ice Moon wants is to get that damn black meteor out of it, right? Symbolism aside, the way in which Alyssa's tears might actually reach the ground is if there is some kind of large avalanche, or if a streaking fireball melts all the snow off the mountain. Just saying. So, the giant's lance might shed its snow, and Alyssa's ghost torrent may one day reach the ground. Winterfell is a shell for waking dragons, waking John Snows, and waking Burning Brandons. And the heart of winter is slowly... Ever so slowly, preparing to unleash the Others on Westeros. And hey, nice Sept of Baelor you got there, all shining white marble and all. Be a real shame if something happened to it. Are you sure they removed all the old jars of wildfire from King Aerys Day? I kid, but even if someone doesn't blow up the Sept of Baelor, as happens in the TV show, mild spoilers, the idea of warriors' sons pouring out of Baelor's Sept also works well to symbolize an invasion of the Others. As we discussed in Moons of Ice and Fire 3, Visenya Draconis, the warrior Sons, like the Kingsguard, serve as symbolic stand-ins for the Others, with their mirror-like armor, their crystal sword in the darkness sigil that replicates the look of an Other's crystal sword in the darkness, and the crystal stars in the pommels of their actual swords, which give them star-sword meteor symbolism to match the star eyes of the Others. So here's yet another ice-moon place, the Sept of Baelor, promising a disastrous outpouring of crystalline star swords, and maybe even an actual big explosion. With all that said, what do you think we'll find at the wall? Dragonlocked and ice symbolism, perhaps, and maybe some hints about the moon blowing up? Well, let's go on and have a look, shall we? The wall is basically our master template for the ice moon, for obvious reasons. It's huge. It's made of ice. It just loves to glitter in the moonlight and it has a knack for imprisoning dragons. The descriptions of it lay out the complete package of icy symbolism, and there are three symbols in particular that we'll focus on. Ice dragons, ice swords, and icy or frozen rivers. All three of these symbols work to imply the ice moon as something that gives off icy moon meteors, and each adds more specific associations as well. The ice dragon symbol evokes John and the dragon locked in ice, the white sword, ice sword symbol evokes both dawn and the swords of the others, and the frozen river symbol kind of suggests a possibility for flooding, in addition to referring back to the white knife, ice sword symbolism of the frozen white knife river at White Harbor. When applied to the wall, all three of these symbols are quite ominous, as you would expect. But we'll get to all that gloom and doom in due time. Let's, let's set that aside for a second. Let's just enjoy the wall while it still stands, you know? Live in the moment. We'll start with the basic descriptions of the wall just as they come to us in the books. Jon Snow's first chapter at the wall in A Game of Thrones gives us several fantastic descriptions of the wall, such as this one.
0: As he stood outside the armory looking up, John felt almost as overwhelmed as he had that day on the King's Road when he'd seen it for the first time. The wall was like that. Sometimes he could almost forget that it was there the way you forget about the sky or the earth underfoot. But there were other times when it seemed as if there was nothing else in the world. It was older than the Seven Kingdoms, and when he stood beneath it and looked up, it made John dizzy. He could feel the great weight of all that ice pressing down on him as if it were about to topple, and somehow John knew that if it fell, the world fell with it.
1: Dun-dun-dun. Like I said... Chekhov's wall has got to fall, and I think the same might go for that ice moon. It may well be the reason that the wall falls, I suspect. And when that icy moon meteor falls through the sky, the world will fall with it, and that it will signal the last battle, if you will, the Ragnarok or Armageddon of a song of ice and fire, the new Long Night. It won't be the end of the world, but rather the end of a world age, where the world will be remade, as Euron says in the Forsaken chapter. I especially like how the ice disaster symbolism is made personal for John when it says he could feel the great weight of all that ice pressing down on him as if he'd been buried beneath it. Bingo! Yet more dead John in the ice cells foreshadowing, and a great nod to the idea of the wall as being a tomb or a prison for a dragon meteor man like John. Now besides John outright speculating about the wall falling, notice that the wall is compared to the sky— And then John thinks about the wall falling. I mean, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little or anything, but I am warning of an impending meteor catastrophe. So, yeah, guys, the sky is falling. But who knows? Maybe I'm just a doom and gloom type and just too excited about moon meteors, and I'm misinterpreting things. Here's another passage from that same John chapter.
0: The largest structure ever built by the hands of men." Stark had told Jon on the King's Road when they had first caught sight of the wall in the distance. And beyond a doubt the most useless, Tyrion Lannister had added with a grin. But even the imp grew silent as they rode closer. You could see it from miles off, a pale blue line across the northern horizon, stretching away to the east and west and vanishing in the far distance, immense and unbroken. This is the end of the world, it seemed to say.
1: Damn it! The end of the world, it seemed to say. Well, we can't say we weren't warned. This is all in the first book so far. I like how it says, immense and unbroken. And then, this is the end of the world. As if to comment on how spectacularly unbroken the wall is before suggesting it as the end of the world. Again, this is the same chapter in which he says that if the wall ever fell, the world would fall with it. So, different chapter now, but still in a Game of Thrones. We have this gem which comes as John pouts about being chosen for the stewards instead of the rangers.
0: Outside, John looked up at the wall shining in the sun, the melting ice creeping down its side in a hundred thin fingers. John's rage was such that he would have smashed it all in an instant and the world be damned. John, Samuel Tarly said excitedly, wait, don't you see what they're doing?
1: Yikes. Easy there, Johnny boy. But I'll ask you the same question that Sam asked John. Don't you see what George is doing? I mean, if this is not foreshadowing, then I don't know what foreshadowing looks like. It's noteworthy that it's John smashing the wall here. Think of resurrected John hatching from the wall like a frozen dragon breaking out of its moonshell. The world will be damned when the other moon kisses the sun, as the wall is doing here by shining and melting in the sun. But at least we'll have John, hopefully with all his rage channeled in the right direction. I also have to give two of my good friends and fellow YouTubers, Zora Hype and Secrets of the Citadel, a quick shout out here, as their exploration of Ragnarok and A Song of Ice and Fire clued me into three things. One, the wall seems like a very close analog to the Bifrost Bridge. Two, the black clad Jon Snow with a burning red sword is very similar to the fire giant Suitor, who also wields a burning red sword. And three, this is the big one, it is Suter who breaks the Bifrost bridge with his flaming sword when Ragnarok falls. Now, I don't think Jon will literally chop down the wall with Longclaw, of course, but I've been saying from the start that his resurrection will be linked to the wall falling and this hashtag Ice Moon Apocalypse that I'm talking about, which seems like Martin's echo of Suter destroying the Bifrost. In this last scene, at least, Jon's ready to smash it. If only he were a huge fire giant, we'd all be in trouble. But let's forget about this whole prophecy of doom thing for just a moment and talk about the wall itself and its descriptive language. Two quotes ago, the wall is described as a pale blue line across the northern horizon, and this next quote from A Clash of Kings gives us a healthy dose of wall
0: symbols. Sam squinted up at the wall. It loomed above them, an icy cliff 700 feet high. Sometimes it seemed to John almost a living thing, with moods of its own. The color of the ice was wont to change with every shift of the light. Now it was the deep blue of frozen rivers, now the dirty white of old snow, and when a cloud passed before the sun, it darkened to the pale gray of pitted stone. The wall stretched east and west, as far as the eye could see, so huge that it shrunk the timbered keeps and stone towers of the castle to insignificance. It was the end of the world.
1: All right, so, uh, you know, I really was trying to be positive. You know, I was. But here we have the wall. Once again, it was the end of the world. Now, of course, they're talking about it's like the end of the civilized world. But, I mean, Martin is really hitting us here a lot with this end of the world stuff. I mean, you have to admit, it does seem like the wall spends basically all of its time thinking about the end of the world. I mean, it's right there in the text. Don't blame me. I look at scenes like this and I can't help but think that one day, the other moon will kiss the sun too and crack and the ice dragons will return. What can I say? Even worse, the very next paragraph mentions the red comet. It's almost as if the sub-narrative is saying, look, the wall is like the end of the world and, oh, by the way, did you notice the enormous comet? The color of blood and fire. I wonder what could help the wall in the world. I really have no idea at all. Certainly not that red comet in the sky. Anyways, I'm obviously having a lot of fun here with the the end-of-the-world stuff, but we do actually need to talk about the wall itself, which in this scene is described as looking like pale stone, like snow, or like frozen rivers. So going in order, pale gray pitted stone is a very lunar-sounding description. And it looks this way, quote, When a cloud passed before the sun Which implies either an eclipse of the sun Or perhaps just clouds darkening the sun Such as after the moon meteor impact As for snow, well, snow is snow It's kind of the crux of what we're talking about John Snow And lots of snow falling from the sky Day after day, for years Now describing the wall as looking like a frozen river Is as good as calling it a white knife Especially since we already know the wall Has sword and snake symbolism We'll see this symbolism again in a minute. Now, the last part of the quote I want to draw your attention to is John thinking that the wall is like a living thing with changing moods. In A Dance with Dragons, John reflects back on this idea again, thinking,
0: The wall has more moods than Mad King Ares, they'd say. Or sometimes, the wall has more moods than a woman.
1: So the latter comparison names the wall a moody, icy woman, and that's got our attention, as it certainly makes the wall more moonlike. I don't know about the moody part. I don't really make a habit of calling women moody myself, pro tip. Not a good idea. But of course, thinking of the wall as an icy woman simply reminds us of the Night's Queen, with her cold, moon-pale flesh. She's the only icy woman that we know of in the entire story. So, comparing the wall to an icy woman has to make us think of Night's Queen and she just happens to be compared to the moon. The very concept of an ice moon pretty much starts with Night's Queen so it definitely makes sense to compare the wall to her. Now the first comparison comparing the wall to Mad King Ares effectively names the wall an icy version of a dragon which means ice dragon. Comparing the wall to Mad Ares also kind of implies the wall is an unstable and explosive ice dragon. The Mad King tried to blow up King's Landing after all and Actually, it could be some of Ares's overripe fruits, which doomed the Sept of Baelor, another ice moon location. Now, as you might recall, the wall has been more directly associated with an ice dragon on several occasions, of course, and it's certainly a major part of the overall wall symbolism. We've already covered some of this in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, but think about the wall's ice dragon symbolism in the context of an ice moon disaster potential. The wall is a big stationary thing, so that's, it's not an obvious comp for an ice dragon, which flies and presumably destroys things on occasion. The idea that the wall can be like an ice dragon makes a lot more sense, though, when you think of the wall as being analogous to the ice moon, which is the mother of ice dragon meteors. Indeed, the four quotes, which compare the wall directly to an ice dragon, seem to tell the familiar story. It's also an ice dragon in the sense that it eats John, as the Ice Moon eats the Black Fire Moon Meteor. Ice Dragon Food. This section goes out to some of our Earthly Avatars of the Twelve Houses of Heaven. Dire Liz, the Alpha Patron, a descendant of Gilbert of the Vines and Garth the Green, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius, Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Leo, Lane Dervish, Woodswitch of the Wolfswood, Earthly Avatar of Celestial House Scorpio. And Turin the Elf, Tavern Keep of the Winespring Inn, Master of the Abyss, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Cancer. Let's see here. Okay, so there are a couple of times that Bran and Jon use the prominent blue star in the Ice Dragon constellation to find the way to the Wall but it's really the four quotes that make direct comparisons between the Wall and the Ice Dragon, which are instructive. So, let's have Quinn read those to us. The first comes in a John chapter of A Storm of Swords as John and a few members of the Watch survey the damage inside the ice tunnel after the Battle of Castle Black.
0: John nodded weakly. The door swung open. Pip led them in, followed by Clytus and the Lantern. It was all John could do to keep up with Maester Aemon. The ice pressed close around them and he could feel the cold seeping into his bones, the weight of the wall above his head. It felt like walking down the gullet of an ice dragon. The tunnel took a twist and then another. Pip unlocked a second iron gate. They walked farther, turned again, and saw light ahead, faint and pale through the ice. That's bad, John knew at once. That's very bad. Then Pip said, There's blood on the floor.
1: Is anthrax bad? (laughs) That's what I thought of when I thought of that one. Uh, So, okay, so here's John's death being clearly foreshadowed as he walks into the wall and into the gullet of an ice dragon. The wall seems to want to eat John. Symbolically, we can see this as the ice moon swallowing the black meteor man, John, with a huge cold mouth. The line about the cold seeping into his bones seems like an obvious reference to Bran's visions of John when he looked north and saw, quote, the wall shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. It also reminds us of Ned in the rain right before his fight with Jamie, where it says that Ned was soaked through to the bone and his soul had grown cold. Then, just to reinforce the death imagery... They see blood on the floor, and John has a strong sense of foreboding. Now, around the bend is Mag the Mighty and Donald Noy and a few other Dead Knight's Watchmen, which would seem to symbolize the struggle or battle inside the Weirwood Net that I've been picking up clues about. And that, by the way, is what the Weirwood Compendium will be building towards once I pick that one up. There's a fight inside the Weirwood Net, and I think that's pretty important. So, setting that aside for another day, we can at least observe that Donald Noy is a valiant knight's watchman who died and whose body is now inside the wall. That's probably the way John is headed too, if his body is stored in the ice cells. Donald's name also contains the word Dawn, so there is that. Don't forget that there is a Johnnel one-eye Stark, who, which uh, sort of combines John and Donald's name with the one-eye symbolism of Odin and the Stark name. And, of course, John already has one-eye Odin symbolism because of his, uh, the eagle wound. Uh, Donald Noy has one arm, which is kind of like his own version of the Odin symbolism, mixed with the symbolism of the moon explosion being like a hand-burning or hand-chopping, such as John's burned hand or Jamie's chopped hand or Davos's chopped fingers, so on and so forth. John also lives in Donald Noy's chambers after becoming Lord Commander, So there's really a lot in common there with John and Donald Noy, and all of that makes it easier to see Donald Noy's body here as being another layer of death foreshadowing for John. And, of course, Azorahai was a smith, as Donald Noy was. Now, check out the lines that come a couple of paragraphs later, which seem to depict John's rebirth from the
0: ice. He needed sun, then. It was too cold and dark inside the tunnel, and the stench of blood and death was suffocating. John gave the lantern back to Clytus, squeezed around the bodies and through the twisted bars, and walked toward the daylight to see what lay beyond the splintered door. The huge carcass of a dead mammoth partially blocked the way. One of the beast's tusks had snagged his cloak and tore it as he edged past. Three more giants lay outside, half buried beneath stone and slush and hardened pitch. He could see where the fire had melted the wall. Wore great sheets of ice had come sloughing off... In the heat to shatter on the blackened ground... He looked up at where they'd come from... When you stand here, it seems immense... As if it were about to crush you...
1: About to crush you... Well, that's... Again, it's more ice-moon disaster symbolism... Think about John emerging from the tunnel here... As John being reborn from the ice... Like the dragon hatching at Winterfell when it was burned... John walks out of the tunnel and sees where fire has melted the wall and great sheets of ice have cracked off, almost as if his hatching had done the damage. It's very similar to Bran and company coming out of the crypts and noticing that one side of the first keep had collapsed in the fire. The resurrection language here is exceptional, with John squeezing around the bodies and through the twisted bars, which depicts John as both escaping the grave and escaping a prison, and escaping the belly of the ice dragon, of course. The splintered wooden door John walks through seems evocative of all the weirwood door symbolism, and is probably intended as a complement to the idea of John and his archetype being reborn from the weirwood net in some sense. In particular, the splintered wooden door would seem to imply John breaking out of the weirwood net, which is what Azor High probably did, or still wants to do if he's stuck in there. Just to make the point clear, All this obvious death and resurrection from the ice symbolism for John here comes alongside the language about the ice dragon-like wall seeming as if it were about to crush you. Again, I say that this is a clue that John's resurrection will coincide with the impending ice-moon disaster, one which will probably topple the wall as well. We'll come back to this idea in the final section when we discuss John's snow-moon dream, so remember this last scene which seems so suggestive of John hatching from the wall. In A Dance with Dragons, John busts out the ice dragon talk again when he's in that tunnel.
0: The road beneath the wall was as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon, and as twisty as a serpent. Dolores Ed led them through with a torch in hand. Mully had the keys for the three gates, where bars of black iron as thick as a man's arm closed off the passage. So
1: as with the previous ice dragon quote, we once again see the comparison between being inside the wall and being inside an ice dragon. It doesn't get any more dragon-locked-in-ice than this. I mean, we've got dragons and locks and ice and John all right here. And if you're playing a drinking game, that last sentence was probably a lot of trouble for you. But, of course, I do not encourage the official A Song of Ice and Fire drinking game, which I helped contribute to. So, moon meteor, moon meteor, moon meteor. Kidding aside, you'll also notice that the black iron bars are compared to a man's arm, and they're also locked in the ice, which again implies the idea of people, or at least body parts, locked in the ice. More specifically, black iron arms remind us of the black hands of whites like cold hands, whose hands were black and hard as iron, and as cold as iron, too. Shout out to the sacred order of the black hand, by the way. Finally, the ice tunnel, being as twisty as a serpent gives me a good excuse to remind you that the underground tunnels beneath Castle Black, which also run under the wall, are called, say it with me, wormways, as if they had been made by fireworms. So I think it's pretty clear that Martin is showing us the idea of dragons and snakes and fireworms under the ice of the wall pretty strongly, just as we saw at Winterfell. In fact, there's even a similar dragon's egg beneath the wall rumor, To the one at Winterfell, which comes to us in an idle musing from Sam.
0: There were dragons here, two hundred years ago, Sam found himself thinking, as he watched the cage making a slow descent. They would have just flown to the top of the wall. Queen Alisane had visited Castle Black on her dragon, and Jaehaerys, her king, had come after her on his own. Could Silverwing had left an egg behind, or could Stannis have found one egg on Dragonstone? Even if he has an egg, how can he hope to quicken it? Baylor the Blessed had prayed over his egg, and other Targaryens had sought to hatch theirs with sorcery. All they got for it was farce and tragedy.
1: So there's both the implication of a dragon's egg somewhere here at the wall, and of someone hatching a dragon here at the wall. Stannis, who's a Dark Azor high figure. Then there's mention of Baylor the Blessed whom you'll recall has covert Night's King symbolism by way of his bale related name, the symbolism of his wives and family, and his habit of locking Ice Moon Maidens in towers. Good Queen Alisanne has fantastic Ice Queen symbolism, by the way. Her name comes from the names of other Ice Moon Maidens, such as Alyssa of the Vale legend, Lysa Tully, Leanna Stark, Elaine Stone, Alanis Harlaw, Theon's mother, and probably one or two others that I've forgotten about. Alysanne famously had a hand in closing the Nightfort, and even funded the building of a smaller, more manageable castle called Deep Lake. The castle, known as Snowgate, was renamed Queensgate in her honor, implying her as a Snow Queen, I'd say. And, according to an SSM, which means, so spake Martin, it is a quote from Martin, SSM, Alessand's appearance fits the bill, as he said that she has clear blue eyes and high cheekbones, and that in old age her hair turned white as snow. I would guess that's probably something that he wrote uh, for the the world of ice and fire that will probably end up in Sons of the Dragon. Because that's pretty specific. He already knows she has snow white hair and blue eyes. Why would he have those specific details picked out already? Because she's an ice queen figure. Her dragon, Silverwing, makes a pretty good ice dragon symbol since she took it to the wall and she's silver. And during the Dance of the Dragons, which happened after the death of Alisanne, Silverwing was claimed by Ulf the White, adding to the white dragon, ice dragon symbolism of Silverwing, who may have laid an egg at the wall. You'll probably recall the next ice dragon quote, which is from Alice Karstark's wedding, because we quoted it just a few episodes ago. That's the scene at the wall where Alice was called Winter's Lady, ...and played the role of a Night's Queen figure... ...with the younger Magnar of Then as the Night's King figure... ...giving his fire to her to be frozen. The relevant Ice Dragon quote was... ...the wind was blowing from the east along the wall... ...cold as the breath of the Ice Dragon in the tales old Nan used to tell... ...and it made Melisandra's fire shiver and huddle in its ditch. A Night's Queen wedding represents her taking the seed and soul of Night's King... ...and turning his hot dragon fire cold which is exactly what's going on in this scene symbolically with the shivering fire. And so it makes perfect sense to see the wall breathing like an ice dragon here and making the fire cold. It's just like the wall eating John and swallowing him down into its ice dragon gullet a moment ago. Alright, so our last ice dragon wall quote shows us more about the dragon reawakening from the ice and about things descending from the ice moon.
0: A sudden gust of wind set Ed's cloak to flapping noisily. Best go down, my lord. The winds like to push us off the wall, and I never did learn the knack of flying. They rode the winch-lift back to the ground. The wind was gusting, bold as the breath of the ice dragon in the tales old Nan had told John when he was a boy. The heavy cage was swaying. From time to time it scraped against the wall, starting small crystalline showers of ice That sparkled in the sunlight as they fell, like shards of broken glass. Glass, John mused, might be of use here. Castle Black needs its own glass gardens, like the ones at Winterfell. We could grow vegetables even in the deep of winter.
1: So, after discussing the efficacy of flying down from the moon like wall, like dragons, they instead ride down in the winch cage, which is much more reasonable. "'It's blowing about in the cold breath of the ice dragon wind, "'and when it collides with the wall, "'it's triggering crystalline showers of ice, "'which are like shards of broken glass "'as they drink the light of the sun. "'Showers of sparkling ice glass "'being chipped off of an ice moon symbol like the wall. "'In close proximity to John, and ice dragon talk well. "'You can't expect me not to say Ice Moon Meteor Shower, "'or to not think of Dawn, the pale-as-milk glass sword,' which I think was the original ice. A storm of ice swords as pale as milk glass. Then immediately after, John has a dream of spring, if you will, as he imagines building a glass garden's enclosure similar to that of Winterfell, so that they can grow green things in the deep of winter, like a true jack-in-the-green, nourishing a bit of green life during the winter to flower again in the spring. I didn't mention the glass gardens when we spoke of Winterfell, But the same jack-in-the-green symbolism applies there as well. In the winter, the gardens are an oasis of green amidst the snowy north, a complement to Winterfell's hot springs, which make it an oasis of warmth. I should also mention the real-world King of Winter tradition here. The little wicker man, King of Winter, is supposed to be burned to help usher in the spring, as most of you will recall. And the same may be true of resurrected John, who is probably not long for this world. He may not live to see the spring, but he does dream of it and set it in motion, and I think that is his role. Just like Jack and the Green. So there you have it. As we've seen in these four quotes, the wall's ice dragon symbolism serves to equate it both with the idea of an ice moon that contains a dragon and the idea of a meteor dragon coming from the ice moon. The icy sword symbolism that popped up a couple of times reinforces the suggestion of icy meteor dragons. And anything about icy swords or dragons coming from the moon ultimately implies some kind of hashtag Ice Moon Apocalypse. In fact, our next batch of quotes about the wall will lead us in the direction of icy swords, so let's go there. We might get wet, though. Icebringer. This section goes out to some more of our Earthly Avatars of the Houses of Heaven. Sir Brian the Return, the Serpent Bearer, Knight of the Last House, Wielder of Red Song, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House, Sophiacus. Sir Dionysus of House Galadon, Wielder of the Mill-Class Blade, the Just Maid, Earthly Avatar of the Heavenly House, Virgo and Libra. And the Mystery Knight, known as only as Rusted Revolver, the Lilith Walker, Great Dane Friend, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House, Pisces. And Ash Rose, Queen of Sevens, Mistress of Mythology, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Taurus. Here's another great description of the wall from that same John chapter of A Game of Thrones that we started with, one which dishes out some more great ice sword and ice moon apocalypse symbolism. It's also just a really nice example of the musicality and the cadence of Martin's writing, which is one of the things I just love about A Song of Ice and Fire.
0: By the time John left the armory, it was almost midday—the sun had broken through the clouds. He turned his back on it and lifted his eyes to the wall, blazing blue and crystalline in the sunlight. Even after all these weeks, the sight of it still gave him the shivers. Centuries of wind-blown dirt had pocked and scoured it, covering it like a film, and it often seemed a pale gray, the color of an overcast sky. But when the sun caught it fair on a bright day, it shone alive with light, a colossal blue-white cliff that filled up half the sky.
1: Filling up the sky is actually a bad thing for an ice-moon symbol. It's very like when John was battling the moon-faced Othor and said its face was against his own filling the world. Here, it's a colossal blue-white cliff that filled up half the sky, and it's shining alive with light, like dawn. This makes my point about the ice sword symbolism of the wall being used to imply the ice moon disaster. The wall is compared to Dawn in the line in which it fills up half the sky. So you can imagine a white, icy sword filling up the sky, and you get the idea. Time to head down to the underground meteor shower shelter. Oh, wait, you don't have a meteor shower shelter? Sounds like a real problem. Returning to the quote, the icy brightness and burning ice motifs, which we cataloged extensively in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, are on central display here, with the wall blazing blue in the sunlight. Blazing is a word used for fire, yet it gives John the shivers, because a cold blue blaze is strongly evocative of the others and their cold burning blue star eyes, of course. This is a cold blaze that we're talking about here, and coming next to the ice wall, being alive with light, like dawn. It's really suggestive. Not only does it suggest that Dawn, the alive-with-light sword, is the original ice, it also seems to suggest that Dawn can indeed catch on fire and truly blaze blue, like the Wall does here. Or like the swords in Jamie's weirwood stump dream, which burn with silvery-blue flame. Ah, there you go. There might be something to that. There's another healthy dose of icy brightness in a quote from A Clash of Kings when John sees the Wall, and it says, "'The sun was high in the sky.' And the upper third of the wall was crystalline blue from below, reflecting so brilliantly that it hurt the eyes to look on. It's blindingly bright, like the sun, or like a flaming sword, and any time the wall is described as crystalline, we should also think of the ice crystal swords of the others. So, there's another possible likeness between the wall and ice swords here. you recall in one of the first quotes I gave you about the wall, John and Tyrion we're observing it from afar, and the wall was described as a pale blue line across the northern horizon. Well, a moment ago, we read that quote about the wall where it's compared to a frozen river and pitted gray stone and then called the end of the world, and I mentioned that, oh, the red comet comes up in the very next paragraph as a suggestion of just how the wall might help to end the world. Now, bearing in mind the pale blue line description of the wall, here is that reference to the red comet.
0: The morning sky was streaked by thin gray clouds, but the pale red line was there behind them. The Black Brothers had dubbed the Wanderer's Torch, saying, only half in jest, that the gods must have sent it to light the old man's way through the haunted forest. The comet's so bright, you can see it by day now, Sam said, shading his eyes with a fistful of books.
1: With a fistful of books? Not quite the same as a fistful of steel. Anyways, uh, pale red line meet pale blue line. Remember that the comet is really an ice and fire duality symbol because it's a flying piece of icy stone that looks to be on fire. You could look at it, therefore, as burning ice, and thus it makes sense to compare it to the wall, which is like an icy snake sword that blazes bright, alive with light. Meteors that burn up in the atmosphere actually do appear bluish in color, usually, uh, so perhaps we'll have lots of pale blue lines in the sky for our hashtag Ice Moon Apocalypse. All right, so now let's get to the good stuff. That's right, I've just been beating around the bush this whole time. In this section and the next, we're going to be parsing just about every part of a certain John chapter in A Dance with Dragons. It's John 1, actually, which is the one that begins with John's most elaborate wolf dream and also includes him arguing with Stannis about manning the forts on the wall, and Melisandre's infamous warning to Jon, which echoes in his head throughout the book leading up to his assassination.
0: You would do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold.
1: We're going to start with Jon arguing with Stannis over the map which begins a great series of parallel quotes, which both compare the wall to Lightbringer and imply a Lightbringer meteor striking the wall. So, John and Stannis are arguing over how to man the forts on the wall as they stand over a map of Westeros. And Stannis draws his fake, cold Lightbringer to threaten and intimidate John, basically. And it says,
0: The king laid his bright blade down on the map, along the wall, It's still shimmering like sunlight on water. Okay,
1: so there are two ways to interpret this, and they are not mutually exclusive by any means. So laying the Lightbringer sword down on top of the wall might simply show us that the wall and the Lightbringer comet are parallel symbols. And in this sense, we might see the entire wall as the sword in the darkness which the Night's Watch wield. I didn't come up with that. That's actually an old form idea. Um, but the idea of Stannis's bright blade shimmering like sunlight uh, but nevertheless giving off no heat is a very similar description to the wall, which is bright and shimmering in the sunlight but obviously gives off no heat. So Stannis's sword and the wall are very similar, and then Stannis lays the sword down on the wall. This would be a match for the Dawn as Original Ice theory. If Dawn is Original Ice, then it would be a cold and bright sword, which matches the wall And Stannis' sword. And, of course, I see Stannis wielding a cold, bright sword as a potential evidence for Night's King wielding Dawn, because Stannis is a big Night's King parallel. Hopefully y'all understood that. Sorry, that sounded a little confused. But, uh, so the other way we could interpret Stannis laying his Lightbringer down along the wall is actually more apocalyptic. We could see this as a depiction of a Lightbringer meteor smashing into the wall. Stannis is a knight's King, dark solar figure, so he's the right sort of guy to slam a Lightbringer into an Ice Moon symbol. This seems a great call-out to Suter, by the way, with Stannis this time as Suter. The map-sized Westeros below them actually does make Stannis feel like a giant, just like Suter, and he has a sword that can span the entire continent. In A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, the only swords that are that big are the meteor kind stannis also drummed his fingers on the map in this conversation those words exactly and he does it again later in a dance with dragons when he and john are again talking over the same map and when a dark azor high uses his hand to drum the land well i think you know what that means boom doom boom doom together with the sword placed over the map on the wall it's pretty friggin ominous It reminds me a lot of the scene where Stannis actually does draw his Lightbringer at the wall in front of the defeated wildlings.
0: Stannis Baratheon drew Lightbringer. The sword glowed red and yellow and orange, alive with light. Jon had seen the show before, but not like this, never before like this. Lightbringer was the sun made steel. When Stannis raised the blade above his head... Men had to turn their heads to cover their eyes. Horses shied, and one threw his rider. The blade in the fire pit seemed to shrink before the storm of light, like a small dog cowering before a larger one. The wall itself turned red and pink and orange, as waves of color danced across the ice. Is this the power of king's blood? Pretty much.
1: Actually, it's the power of glamour and sorcery. So the wall here is lighting up just like Stannis' sword, which again is a light bringer that produces no heat. And its storm of light here is entirely Melisandre's glamour and not the result of wildfire or any other sort of fire. So it literally is blinding like the sun and yet not hot at all, just like the wall. The alive with light descriptor now is applied to Stannis' sword when we just saw it applied to the wall. So another great comparison. And of course, Dawn itself is a luminescent sword that gives off no heat, at least no heat that we know of, and which is obviously the original Ice of House Stark. So as with the map scene, it's, it's hard to say whether this scene is simply Stannis showing us that the wall is similar or comparable to his cold alive with light sword, or if he's showing us that a real meteor sword is destined to light up the wall with actual fire. Either way, it's very similar to Stannis laying his Lightbringer on the map across the wall. It's still shimmering like sunlight on water. Sunlight on water kind of sounds like a flood is coming from the wall when the sword strikes it. When Stannis drew his sword at the wall, it says waves of color danced across the ice. So again, we have the suggestion of melting water coming from the wall when the shining sword is nearby. In that same scene where Stannis lays Lightbringer across the wall on the map, it
0: also says, The map lay between them like a battleground, drenched by the colors of the glowing sword.
1: Drenched, you say? Very interesting, very interesting. Sounds like we'll need boats or something. There's also that second scene with Jon and Stannis talking over the map, and in that scene, we get these lines.
0: Jon moved the map. Candles had been placed at its corners to keep it from rolling up. A finger of warm wax was puddling out across the Bay of Seals, slow as a glacier. So the wall certainly looks like the edge of a glacier,
1: one with a very sharp edge, granted. And here we see a glacier oozing out of the north like an icy tide. Again, it's ominous and speaks of a cold flood coming from the wall. What's really cool is that when John sees an actual glacier, he mistakes it for the wall for a moment. This is John's vision through the eyes of Ghost during his journey into the Frostfangs with half Halfhand.
0: A vast blue-white wall plugged one end of the veil, squeezing between the mountains as if it had shouldered them aside, and for a moment he thought he had dreamed himself back to Castle Black. Then he realized he was looking at a river of ice several thousand feet high, Under that glittering cold cliff was a great lake, its deep cobalt waters reflecting the snow-capped peaks that ringed it.
1: Not only is this glacier compared to the wall, it's also called a frozen river of ice, just as the wall is. And although the lake beneath the glacier is really at the foot of the glacier, the wording makes it sound like the lake is under the glacier, which gives us the familiar frozen pond motif. The frozen pond motif was first defined by the others' first appearance in a Game of Thrones prologue, where we saw that the ice armor of the others is reflective like a mirror, and the reflected images of their surroundings ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. But of course, that armor is made out of ice, so really we're talking about a frozen pond. And also in the prologue, their speech is described as being like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, which kind of makes you think of Lucifer being set free from the frozen lake Which is exactly what the others kind of represent So not an accident And the winter lake symbol is important So although the wall doesn't have water trapped inside it like a frozen lake It is of course a big piece of frozen water And if it's hit by a meteor or a comet Most of it would actually vaporize and melt instantly And then we'd indeed get a huge flood the cracking of the ice of the wall will also lead to an invasion of the others. So we can see that actually, in a way, the cracking ice of a winter like voices of the others combined with their frozen pond symbolism kind of foreshadows the cracking of the wall, which is like a frozen river. And if I could just step away from all the sort of intricacies, just think about it real basically. The other's speech is like the cracking of ice. And what do they want to do? They want to crack the wall and march on you. I'm really curious to see if Ravenous Reader's killing word theory makes an appearance here, and we have Night's King or the others using some sort of speech to crack the wall. That'd be awesome. That'd be literally like their cracking ice speech. But, uh, you know, that could just be taking the symbolism too far. We'll have to see. Hats tip to Ravenous Reader, the poetess of the Mountains. Alright, so then we have the Milkwater River. We've talked about the White Knife a bunch of times. And the Milkwater is kind of a symbolic twin to the White Knife. It also shows us the frozen pond symbolism. Uh, And then, of course, we also have a tributary stream of the Milkwater, which really nails it.
0: At the bottom of the slope, they came upon a little stream flowing down from the foothills to join the Milkwater. It looked all stone and glass, though they could hear the sound of water running beneath the frozen surface. Rattleshirt led them across, shattering the thin crust of ice. Stones and glass
1: and ice are an interesting combination, because Dawn is as pale as milk glass, made from a pale stone, and was once the original ice, as we all know for an absolute fact of canon, settled beyond all debate. All right, so compare that to the phraseology here. A milk-water river of stone and glass and ice versus an icy white sword made from a pale stone that looks like milk glass. Again, it's very similar to the white knife, freezing hard when Brandon Ice-Eyes Stark comes to town. Frozen rivers keep reminding us of dawn, basically. The wall, of course, is a frozen river and is described in the same alive-with-light language as dawn. So... You can see how we've got a new symbolism three-way or four-way or five-way happening here. Lots of fingers jamming in each other with symbolism and... All right. So, and now I will unveil a quote about the Milkwater River that I've been saving for something like two and a half years. And yes, I have been storing up notes in preparation to write about the others for that long.
0: The world was gray darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold. Pale mist rose from the black earth as the riders threaded their way through the scatter of stones and scraggly trees down toward the welcoming fire strewn like jewels across the floor of the river valley below. There were more fires than John could count. Hundreds of fires. Thousands. A second river of flickery lights along the banks of the icy white milk water. The fingers of his sword hand opened and closed.
1: The recurring line about John's sword hand is kind of the clue that tips us off as to what these two parallel rivers symbolize. Swords. The icy white milk water is a great analog for dawn and the wall, as we just saw. And alongside it is a second river. Thousands of flickery lights that look like fiery jewels against the surrounding darkness. That is our dark light bringer. Darkness punctuated by flame. It's basically like black fire is described, which is black flame with little... Specks of red and gold, and it's laid out next to its opposite, the icy white milk water. They are ready to have a fight. It seems to me, and this is also. I'll just, you know, I often talk about. Was there one Lightbringer sword? Uh, we've got this mysterious Dawn sword that's white, and I've speculated that Azor Ahai has a black meteor sword, and I've basically said that it makes a lot of sense to have two magic swords because you can't have a sword fight with one sword. And here we have these two river swords laid out next to each other. So, there you go. Now, just as we've seen the white knife and milk water symbolize dawn a few times, we've seen on more than one occasion that the black water rush symbolizes the burning black sword that I theorize Azor Hyde to have forged from a black moon meteor, the one from the Bloodstone Emperor myth. As I've pointed out, the name black water seems to allude to the waves of blood and night, drink, which are seen in the folds of Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail. The Blackwater Rush flows from the god's eye, which I believe symbolizes the moon-sun eclipse conjunction that seemed to have happened when the Long Night explosion occurred. And thus it makes sense to see the Blackwater Rush as representing those waves of darkness and night that emanate from the moon explosion. Then when Rhaegar and Lyanna absconded to conceive Jon, the Blackwater Rush froze over, giving us the black ice symbol... Comes from Ned's black sword named Ice, which is now Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale with the waves of night. Finally, we know that Tyrion sets the Blackwater Rush on fire at the Battle of the Blackwater, whereupon it becomes the mouth of hell. Ergo, the Blackwater seems an embodiment of the Dark Lightbringer burning black sword symbolism, a perfect opposite to the Milkwater and White Knife rivers. So, to briefly sum up this Icebringer section, I'll simply say, that I believe the obvious reason to bring rivers of various kinds into the swords and meteors' lines of symbolism is to describe the water-based effects of the meteor attacks, old and new. The first one brought figurative waves of darkness and then literal tidal waves in that darkness. So waves of night is a sensible thing to include in Lightbringer symbolism. Plus there's all that delightful moonblood wordplay. Now the meteor attack to come involving the ice moon, seems destined to break the wall and melt a whole lot of ice, causing rivers of ice to flow. The wall is like an ice sword, so when a moon meteor comes streaking down to collide with it, it will be like the clashing of two swords. And with the breaking of those two swords will come a big splash and a flood. Now, the other way that frozen rivers and lakes play into this is more metaphorical and has to do with that idea of plunging through an icy lake to represent a certain kind of death transformation, as well as that icy lake-cracking voice of the others. A Shock of Cold This next section is brought to you by some more of our earthly avatars of the Heavenly Houses. Queen Cameron, Lady of the Twilight, Keeper of the Astral Cats, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Aries, The Child of the Forest Known as Feathercrow, the Weir Cat Dryad, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn. Sarah Stark of the Wolf's Blood, the Shining Hand of Facephoria, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Sagittarius. And I'll also add a thank you to Sir Dale the Winged Fist, the Last Sign of House Mud, and Captain of the Dreadship Black Squirrel, a member of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand. One of my oldest running patrons. Thanks, Dale. You're the man. Of Cold. Next up, we have an absolute gem of a scene which showcases a ton of frozen stream symbolism, icy moon symbolism, dawn symbolism, ice sword symbolism, John and Death Rebirth symbolism. Oh, and there's something about the wall falling naturally that would be the scene where john and corn ride through a waterfall and into a mountain cave to a try to try to evade the wildlings and aurel's eagle before they get to the cave however we've got to talk about a couple things they light one of those ground zero bonfires that we were looking at in a grove of ash
0: john went to cut more branches snapping each one in two before tossing it into the flames the tree had been dead a long time But it seemed to live again in the fire, as fiery dancers woke within each stick of wood to whirl and spin in their glowing gowns of yellow, red, and orange.
1: Okay, so in the last quote that Quinn read, we had fiery dancers waking with each stick of wood to whirl and spin in their glowing gowns of yellow, red, and orange. And if you've listened to In a Grove of Ash, you know that that is the same language that we see at Danny's Alchemical Wedding. When she wakes the dragons, she sees fiery dancers spinning in gowns of red, yellow, and orange. I mean, it's the same language. And the reason why is because this fire here with John and Corrin also represents the sun-comet-fire-moon collision, just like Danny's dragon hatching scene does. And just like all of these ember-in-the-ashes bonfires, not ember-in-the-ashes, I'm sorry, but the sort of uh, the fiery sorcerers waking from the bonfire scene. The tree living again in the flames would be a reference to Azor High being reborn inside the weirwood net, just like John will be, uh, which seems to happen when Nissa, Nissa is killed and the moon cracked. So think about the storm god's meteor thunderbolt. It set the tree ablaze with the fire of the gods. So you've got the burning tree and the meteor being juxtaposed. And then the Grey King possesses the fire of the gods. And that's the same thing we see here. We see fiery sorcerers, living again in the fire, which is the burning tree, fire of the gods symbol. And if you want to know more about that in a grove of ash, we would compendium four. Point is, this represents the fire moon explosion. And then John and Corrin, after lighting the fire moon bonfire, they immediately ride away into the cold night, like black meteor swords flying through the darkness towards the ice moon.
0: John pulled on his gloves again and raised his hood. Even the horses seemed reluctant to leave the fire. The sun was long gone, and only the cold sliver of the half moon remained to light their way over the treacherous ground that lay behind them. He did not know what Corrin had in mind, but perhaps it was a chance. He hopes so. I do not want to play the oath breaker, even for a good reason.
1: John doesn't want to be an oath breaker, he wants to be an oath keeper. Oathkeeper is his father's sword, after all, and Black Ice is John's symbol. John and Corrin, as Night's Watch brothers, already have Black Sword symbolism, as all Night's Watch brothers do. So calling John not an Oathbreaker is really just a sly way to reinforce the Black Sword motif and make us think of Ned's sword, now Oathkeeper. I'm sure you noticed the cold silver shine of the half-moon lighting their way, because John and Corinne are about to symbolically enter the ice moon. And that's pretty explicit. It's a cold moon right there in the sky. Now, on their way, they have lovely scenery to pass through as, quote, a narrow defile where an icy little stream emerged from between two mountains passes by. Corin notes that the water's icing up as, quote, they followed the moonlit ribbon of stream back to its source. We see that icicles bearded the stony banks, but John could still hear the sound of rushing water beneath a thin, hard crust. That's nice because it's combining the snowbeard symbolism with that of the frozen stream and the cold moonlight. Then we get to the waterfall, where we see the entry wound of the meteor, the scratch across the face of the ice moon.
0: A great jumble of fallen rock blocked their way partway up, where a section of the cliff had fallen, but the sure-footed little Garons were able to pick their way through. Beyond the walls pinched in sharply, and the stream led them to the foot of a tall, twisting waterfall. The air was full of mist, like the breath of some vast, cold beast. The tumbling water shone silver in the moonlight. John looked about in dismay. There is no way out. He and Korn might be able to climb the cliff, but not with the horses. He did not think they would last long afoot. Quickly now, the half-hand commanded, the big man on the small horse rode over the ice-slick stones right into the curtain of water and vanished. When he did not reappear, John put his heels into his horse and went after. His garen did his best not to shy away. The falling water slapped at them with frozen fist, and the shock of the cold seemed to stop John's breath. Then he was through, drenched and shivering, but through.
1: So once again, John is ice dragon food as he ignores the breath of the vast cold beast and enters the curtain of moonlit icy water anyway, which seems to stop John's breath. So this is all going according to plan. When John actually dies in A Dance with Dragons, he never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. And when Verimir dies, it's like plunging through the surface of an icy lake. Both are depictions of an Azor-High black meteor person, symbolically entering the ice moon and becoming locked in the ice, which is a death transformation. Drink. In fact, look, and by the way, I don't endorse the drinking game at all. In fact, look at the quote from Vermeer's death and compare it to this waterfall scene.
0: True death came suddenly. He felt a shock of cold, as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake. Then he found himself rushing over moonlit snows with his pack mates close behind him.
1: I mean, it's so similar. The shock of the cold seemed to stop John's breath. As he walks through a moonlit waterfall, compared to, he felt a shock of cold, as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake, which is followed by moonlit snows. Vermeer then lands in his wolf, one eye, just as John's spirit is presumably flying to his wolf after his stabbing these past six years. In other words, this scene at the waterfall foreshadows John's death in the frozen lake language of Vermir's death, which makes a ton of sense. Better yet, the breath of a vast cold beast language parallels the scenes we looked at earlier where John is being swallowed by the ice dragon-like wall, which is also like a frozen river or stream. I hope you're beginning to see how this works. The ice moon is like a frozen body of water. And anything going into a frozen lake or river is probably going into the ice moon, symbolically. And here I will take a quick break from the script to just give you a little tidbit. Ice moons are a real thing in the solar system. Um, Europa is the most famous one. And by the way, George uses the uh, wordplay of Europa in Euron and a couple other places. And Euron has a moon face with a blue eye. But that aside, ice moons are like frozen ponds, because the way that they are um, constructed is like this. It's basically a big, a big rocky moon at the core, just like our moon, then covered in ocean, a global ocean of either cold water or methane, liquid methane, within like a 60-mile-thick crust of ice all the way around. So an ice moon is literally like a frozen pond. And I do think that this is something that George was thinking about because, A, he's into science fiction and keeps up on this kind of stuff. And Europa is by far the most famous ice moon uh, anywhere in the universe and has been something that's been talked about for a long time. And Europa, Jupiter also has Io, which is a fire moon. So I basically – I'm going to talk about this more on the live stream. Uh, It's like a little tidbit of research that I had that I sort of cut out of an essay. But fire moons and ice moons do exist – The fire moons are like floating volcanoes. The ice moons are just like I described. So he's actually recreating that whole geology here. But a bit of an aside. Uh, Anyways, so again here I have to point to the others having voices like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. And I would suggest that this is alluding to the ice moon as a frozen lake and the others as cold meteor stars that pour forth from the crack across the face of that ice moon. So, I think we've established that John is symbolically dying and entering the ice moon here by walking through the moonlit waterfall. So let's see what John finds inside the cave. First, and by the way, if you're thinking of Alyssa's tears, another frozen waterfall of ice moon symbolism, that's good, because same idea. So anyways, Corin, when they're in the cave, talks about how, quote, he heard a brother tell how he followed a shadow cat through these falls, which compares to the Night's Watch brothers to shadow cats. And that's the same thing that Jon did when he and Corrin crept along the ledge before attacking Ygritte's company, if you recall, at the campfire in the Frostfangs. Shadow cats fit the Lion of Night black dragon archetype, as exemplified by Princess Rainy's black cat named Balerion, which is why the black shadows of the Night's Watch are compared to them, because it's the same black meteor symbol. In astronomy terms, the point is that black meteor symbols are what enter the ice moon, whether they're shadow cats or black Night's Watch brothers who are like shadows. Picking up the quote,
0: we have Corrin speaking. There is a way through the heart of the mountain. Come, Don, if they have not found us, we will press on. The first watch is mine, brother. Corrin seated himself on the sand, back to a wall, no more than a vague black shadow in the gloom of the cave. Over the rush of falling waters John heard a soft sound of steel on leather that could only mean the half-hand had drawn his sword. He took off his wet cloak. But it was too cold and damp here to strip down any further. Ghost stretched out beside him and licked his glove before curling up to sleep. John was grateful for his warmth. He wondered if the fire was still burning outside, or if it had gone by now, if the wall should ever fall. All the fires will go out. The moon shone through the curtain of falling water to lay a shimmering pale stripe across the sand. But after a time, that too faded and went dark. Sleep came at last, and with it nightmares. He dreamed of burning castles and dead men rising unquiet from their graves. It was still dark when Corin woke him. While the half-hand slept, John sat with his back to the cave wall, listening to the water and waiting for the dawn.
1: So, hopefully you guys are well-trained enough in mythical astronomy that you caught a lot of what is going on there. Korin, the black shadow, draws his sword, which symbolizes the black meteor sword's penetration of the ice moon. This is the same as Rhaegar's black lance penetrating the blue rose crown. It's the same idea. Then we get the requisite obvious foreshadowing of the wall-following. And this is really the last quote that I have stored away about the wall falling. I don't think there are any more. So if you know of any others that I missed, let me know. Uh, I saw someone in the chat earlier mention this quote. And uh, yeah, I was saving it. So after we have this foreshadowing of the wall falling, uh, we get a strong ice moon meteor symbol as, quote, The moon shone through the curtain of falling water to lay a shimmering pale stripe across the sand. So that is Ice Moon sending down a beam of light, and it even lands in the sand, like Stannis's Lightbringer stuck in the sand at Dragonstone. And the word dawn is conspicuously mentioned in the very next paragraph. We do not fail to notice. We also can't fail to notice that John's dream uh, that John dreams of burning castles and dead men rising from their graves. This couldn't be any stronger of a call out to Winterfell's burning a scene which heavily foreshadows John's resurrection as a dragon person waking from the crypts. The burning castle is the ice moon, but only when John the sleeping dragon wakes from it in fire. This will happen when the wall falls, it seems safe to say at this point. The idea of John and Corn as black shadows inside the ice moon, which is depicted here, has parallels to a couple of scenes at the wall with Melisandre that you may recall, Where certain prominent figures conspired to cast their shadows onto or into the wall. We don't need to quote all of those again, but here's the most relevant example from A Dance with Dragons with Melisandre speaking to Jon Snow.
0: Every man who walks the earth casts a shadow on the world. Some are thin and weak, others long and dark. You should look behind you, Lord Snow. The moon has kissed you and etched your shadow upon the ice 20 feet tall. John glanced over his shoulder. The shadow was there, just as she had said, etched in moonlight against the wall. So placing John's
1: shadow inside the ice of the wall is very clear dead John inside the ice shells foreshadowing. But of course, there's also great mythical astronomy going on here too. Think of John once again as the black fire moon meteor Hurling towards the ice moon Just like when Corrin and John Rode away from the ground zero bonfire To enter the waterfall ice moon symbol As John kisses the moon The fire moon it would be His shadow is then etched into the ice of the wall Which represents the ice moon of course So it's just like John being swallowed Into the ice dragon's gullet When he walks into the wall But with the moon kissing language Of the Carthian prophecy added in for effect we might also think of Knight's King here, kissing Knight's Queen, and giving his seed and soul to be locked in her ice. Now, the very first place that dead John's, or maybe not the first, but the first, uh, the first place that people found the dead John in the ice cells, foreshadowing, and that was Radio Westros, may have been uh, the scene where John goes to visit Cregan Karstark, who John had imprisoned in the ice cells. That's the scene where Wick Whittlestick, John's eventual killer opens the door to the ice cell so that John can, quote, slip inside, which is followed by the infamous line, John Snow could see his own reflection dimly inside the icy walls. It's more than just John's body being stored in an ice cell. It's a depiction of John as the dragon locked in ice, a sleeping dragon inside a cold moon. Now, Corrigan himself, and this is the next level of the scene, uh, actually foreshadows John's death and rebirth from the ice. So the Karstarks are an offshoot branch of House Stark, which Cregan brings up in this conversation. And Cregan is the name of one of the mightiest and most famous Starks in recent history, Cregan Stark, who signed the Pact of Ice and Fire with Cesarius Valerion during the Dance of the Dragons, and whom Aemon the Dragon Knight called the finest swordsman he had ever faced. Now, Cregan Karstark, on the other hand, is not so grand. However, he does have very noteworthy symbolism. He's freezing... He's howling like a wolf, and given that John is seeing himself in the ice cells in the scene, I think we can look at Cregan and simply see a stark-blooded person turning into a wolf and undergoing ice transformation, which of course would simply be more foreshadowing for John's body being in the cells while his spirit is in his wolf for a time before he's reborn. And then after John slips inside Cregan's ice cell, there's even more symbolism along these lines.
0: In one corner of the cell, a heap of furs was piled up almost to the height of a man. "'Karstark,' said Jon Snow, "'wake up.' The furs stirred. Some had frozen together, and the frost that covered them glittered when they moved. An arm emerged, then a face, brown hair, tangled and matted and shrieked with grey. Two fierce eyes, a nose, a mouth, a beard. Eyes caked the prisoner's moustache. Clumps of frozen snot. Snow, his breath steamed in the air, fogging the ice behind his head.
1: This scene is basically showing us a frozen wolf turning into an angry, snow bearded, stark wolfman. The first thing he says is snow, which seems like a clever clue about Cregan foreshadowing John's own fate. And as if to underscore this further, Cregan, who was just howling like a wolf, goes on a tirade. And calls John half a wolf And reminds him that Stark and Stark are one blood So they're both emphasized as wolf people here John, of course, seems destined to have his second life inside ghost interrupted So he can wake up in his resurrected body And this brings us to that dream that John had one time Of a moon that screams snow at him Then turns into a raven and lands on his chest as he wakes up In terms of Icebringers, that's a real humdinger A flurry of Corn and One Post Raven. This section is brought to you by some members of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand, Sir Stoyles of Long Branch, seeker of Pale Blood, Mallory Sand, Stormwitch, rider of Zulfric, the Black Beast, Matthias Mormont, the sea Goat of the Bottomless Depths, Count Magpie the Rude, the Dinky Giant, hornblower of the Onslow Fjord, the Lady of Stellar Reason and Maleficence. And Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroom, sworn L. Smith to House Stark, Grand Maester of the Zith- Zithomancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buttles. Now, if I had my druthers, we will see John's resurrection occur with the reappearance of the comet and or that comet striking the ice moon, like I've been saying. As above, so below, right? After all, John's spirit will be awaiting resurrection inside his wolf, and the most clear ice moon disaster foreshadowing of all does come as John wakes up from a wolf dream from a dance with dragons. Better yet, this wolf dream is kicking off the chapter that we looked at earlier, where Stannis lays his light bringer down on the map across the wall, which already seems like killer hashtag ice moon apocalypse foreshadowing. But you ain't seen nothing yet, let me tell you. This is the opening of John 1 of A Dance with Dragons. Although we will be skipping certain lines to highlight the language that has to do with the wall and the moon. If you listen, you'll spot the uh, inspiration for the original title of this episode, those of you who know what that was. Go ahead, Quinn.
0: The white wolf raced through a black wood beneath a pale cliff as tall as the sky. The moon ran with him, slipping through a tangle of bare branches overhead. "'across the starry sky. "'Snow!' the moon murmured. "'The wolf made no answer. "'Snow crunched beneath his paws. "'The wind sighed through the trees. "'Snow!' the moon called down again, cackling. "'The white wolf padded along the man-trail beneath the icy cliff. "'The taste of blood was on his tongue, "'and his ears rang to the song of the hundred cousins. "'Snow!' the moon insisted. The white wolf ran from it, racing toward the cave of night where the sun had hidden, his breath frosting in the air. On starless nights, the great cliff was as black as stone, a darkness towering high above the wide world. But when the moon came out, it shimmered pale and icy as a frozen stream. Snow! An icicle tumbled from a branch. The white wolf turned and bared his teeth. Snow! Snow! His fur rose bristling as the woods dissolved around him. Snow, snow, snow. He heard the beat of wings. Through the gloom, a raven flew. It landed on Jon Snow's chest with a thump and a scrabbling of claws. Snow, it screamed into his face.
1: Snow, the moon insisted. No, really. Snow. It's coming, I'm telling you, from the moon. Snow, from the moon. Here it comes. I mean, that was just the abbreviated quote, but consider the main lines I pulled here. The moon says snow to John five times in the wolf dream, then three more times as the dream fades out, and once again, as the moon becomes the raven when John wakes up. In other words, John is hearing the raven say snow while he's in the wolf dream, and in the dream, it seems like the moon is saying snow. And then when John wakes, the screaming raven lands on John's chest with a thump. So it's basically like the moon just fell out of the sky and woke John up, all while screaming, Snow! (laughs) Snow, the moon insisted. No, really. (laughs) It's coming. Anyways, so if there is indeed to be a future moon disaster event, I am basically certain at this point that it has to coincide with John's resurrection, or be in some way tied to John's resurrection, because symbolically they're the same thing. To me, the line about the white wolf racing through the, uh, towards the cave of night where the sun had hidden reads like temporarily dead Solar King John's spirit being in the underworld, the cave of night, for a time, and about Ghost playing a key part in his resurrection. And these are things that we basically already know will happen, but their inclusion in the dream serves to tip us off that this is about John being dead, and inside Ghost, and in the cave of night, and then resurrected. Notice the sequence on the fourth cry of snow. The moon says snow, then an icicle, an ice moon, meteor, falls down from a branch and makes ghost bare his teeth. And then John's consciousness pulls away from ghost as he wakes to the raven landing on his chest. So essentially, imagine the icicle as the snow falling from the moon and the raven that lands on John's chest as a continuation of the falling meteor, which depicts the landing. And then John wakes up. It's a moon meteor alarm clock. Better not sleep through that one. So think back to that scene where John walks into the tunnel through the wall, and it's like walking into the gullet of the ice dragon. Inside, John saw Donald Noy and Magda Mighty locked in a mutual death grip and then walked on the other side to notice that large sheets of ice had cracked off in the fire and thinks about how it just looks like it wants to crush you in general. This scene with John waking from the wolf dream sends the same message. John being reborn from the ice will probably be linked to whatever moon disaster and wall disaster events Martin may have planned. I know I keep harping on this, but I mean, it's just want to point out how many times we're sent this message. And speaking of wall disaster foreshadowing, I'm sure you noticed that the wall features prominently all through John's wolf dream here. I especially love the line when the moon came out, it shimmered pale and icy as a frozen stream. The ambiguous wording makes it sound as though the moon is coming out of the sky like a frozen stream. And of course, frozen streams make us think of the frozen river sword symbolism we've just been talking about, which implies the moon coming out of the sky like a frozen sword or like a white knife. On the whole, there are lots of ice moon media references here in John's dream. The raven landing on John's chest, the falling icicle, and the idea of a moon falling like a frozen stream. But really... I'm beating around the bush in terms of foreshadowing of the destruction of the wall. Let's pick up the end of the dream as John wakes up.
0: Snow, snow, snow. He heard the beat of wings. Through the gloom, a raven flew. It landed on John Snow's chest with a thump and the scrabbling of claws. Snow, it screamed into his face. I hear you. The room was dim, his palate hard. Gray light leaked through the shutters, promising another bleak cold day. Is this how you woke Mormont? Get your feathers out of my face!" John wriggled an arm out from under his blankets to shoo the raven off. It was a big bird, old and bold and scruffy, utterly without fear. "'Snow!' it cried, flapping to his bedpost. "'Snow! Snow!' John filled his fist with a pillow and let it fly. But the bird took to the air. The pillow struck the wall and burst, scattering stuffing everywhere, "'just as Dolores Ed Tolette poked his head through the door. "'Beg pardon,' he said, ignoring the flurry of feathers. "'Shall I fetch my lord some breakfast?' "'Corn!' cried the raven. "'Corn! Corn!' "'Roast raven,' John suggested, "'and half a pint of ale.'"
1: So the first thing that should have jumped out to you is the raven saying snow as John throws a feather pillow against a wall which bursts and creates a flurry of presumably white feathers. The moon raven promised snow, and here it is. It's a flurry of snow. John's rage was such that he would have smashed it all in an instant and the world be damned. And here it is. The symbolism implies a flying object striking the wall, followed by snow flurries. And indeed, if a flying object hits the real wall... We will get a snowstorm the likes of which we haven't seen in, oh, 8,000 years, give or take. Now, because the pillow's made of feathers, it really does work well as an extension of the raven, which seems to fall from the moon as John wakes up from the wolf dream. Thus, the pillow hitting the wall of the room really does create the image of a moon meteor striking the wall. In actuality, a moon meteor needn't strike a direct hit on the wall to cause it to fall. If the impact were simply close enough to cause any kind of earthquake I mean, close enough to wake giants in the earth, then it might bring the wall down. Put it this way if there is going to be a moon meteor impact in the remaining books, it's surely going to have to be the mechanism for the wall to fall, because it's very unlikely we'd have two separate, unrelated catastrophic events of that magnitude coming So either the wall's going to fall by itself or it's going to fall because meteors hit it, so that's, that's how I'm looking at it once again, I will remind you that this is the very same chapter in which John and Stannis argue over the map. Stannis lays his Lightbringer down across the wall. So to me, there is little question that this entire chapter, John's first in A Dance with Dragons, is all about the impending disaster involving the wall and the ice moon, as well as John's resurrection. So wow, right? A moon calling down snow, loads of projectile symbolism, something striking the wall, and then the flurry that was promised all while John wakes from a wolf dream. Are you not entertained, I say? Well, as always, it gets worse. The final piece of this is that the raven, which seems at first to be locked inside the moon and then flies down to land on John, in my estimation, also represents John's spirit returning to his body. That's right. Think about it. While John is dead and his spirit resides in ghosts, John is symbolically locked in the ice, which equates to being locked in the ice moon, just as the raven appears to be in the stream. It calls down snow to warn us about snow coming from the moon, but it's not only snow as in ice moon meteors coming from the actual moon, but Jon Snow's spirit returning to his body from the cold afterlife, just as the raven flies to Jon's body and cries out his name, waking him from the wolf dream. There's even a line a page or two later where John looks at the raven, who was watching him shrewdly, and says, Do you take me for your thrall? Now, the whited corpses of the army of the dead are described as the thralls of the others. So John being a thrall to the raven might really be talking about John's resurrected body as a thrall to his own spirit. And given that this is Mormont's raven and is likely inhabited by blood raven from time to time, there's also the implication of resurrected John as a thrall to the weirwood net or perhaps you might say servant or champion of the weirwood net. And this is in line with our green zombies theory all the way, since it suggests that the last hero and his 12 dead companions were actually skin changers or green seers whose resurrections involved weirwoods and the children of the forest magic. So I think the symbolism so far seems to point to John waking from death in fire, at least in some sense, just like the King of Winter. And that may be what's being depicted by John asking for roast raven for breakfast. If the raven is his spirit, then his spirit is implied as fiery. And when it returns to his body, it's like someone breathing the fiery kiss of life, such as Thoros breathes into Beric. In a sense, John will be the roasted raven when he wakes up. Well, okay, the roast crow. He'll be a match for his dream of the moon-faced white wearing Ned's face while burning like straw in an imbys of flame. And certainly, he'll be a match for the burning scarecrow brothers from his Azora High Dream. Aha! Those burning scarecrow brothers are key because they compare so well to Beric, who's a scarecrow knight and was resurrected through fire magic and wields a fiery sword, and whom George Martin said uh, is foreshadowing for John, and he called him a fire White. So, a roast raven could be taken also as a phoenix symbol. And I think that makes sense, because thinking about John as a phoenix, well, he's already implied as a burning scarecrow or a dragon. And come to think of it, those burning scarecrow brothers in John's dream, quote, tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze, as John's sword burned red, which actually shows us burning crows flying down from the wall, which is a giant symbol of the ice moon. And just when the red sword comes out to play at the wall. And this is another great suitor destroying the Bifrost Bridge scene. So the idea of John eating the roast raven, according to my analysis, also implies John absorbing his fiery spirit back into his cold body. Now, this eating-slash-skin-changing symbolism, I didn't just pull it out of my butt. It's actually built up in this chapter, as John thinks about the fact that Mormont's raven ate Mormont when he
0: died. That bird is too clever by half. It had been the old bear's companion for long years, but that had not stopped it from eating Mormont's face once he died. So Mormont isn't a skin changer, but he is symbolically implied as
1: one by virtue of his always having a talking raven on his shoulder, as we've discussed in the Green Zombie series. So the idea of Mormont's raven eating Mormont implies Mormont's spirit going into his raven. And that's exactly what would have happened to Mormont if he had been a real skin changer, bonded to his raven, he would have gone into his raven to start a second life. So this is kind of like the reverse of John eating his raven because John's spirit is coming back into his body from his animal. So he eats the animal as opposed to uh, Mormon's spirit symbolically leaving his body for his animal when he dies. So whoever is doing the eating is absorbing the spirit of the thing being eaten in symbolic terms. And that's pretty easy to understand. And John will wake his sleeping co- when his sleeping corpse can reabsorb his fiery spirit, as suggested by the raven landing on John's chest and John wanting to roast it and eat it. So the idea of skin changers having a second life inside their animals is also brought up right after John wakes up from his dream. And remember, this is coming shortly on the heels of the Vermeer Sixskins prologue, which is all about second life. So John thinks about Bran and Rickon being dead. But he knows that their wolves are alive because he sensed them in his wolf dream. And it says, He wondered if some part of his dead brothers lived on inside the wolves. Which is a great way to pull all the second life stuff we just learned about earlier in the Vermeer, A Dance with Dragons prologue into John's story arc and thereby foreshadow his second life inside Ghost. Especially coming right after this most vivid of wolf dreams. As John dresses and leaves his chambers, there's talk of waking dragons.
0: If his grace is doomed, your realm is doomed as well, said Lady Melisandra. Remember that, Lord Snow. It is the one true king of Westeros who stands before you. John kept his face a mask. As you say, my lady, Stannis snorted. You spin your words as if every one were a gold dragon. I wonder how much gold do you have laid by? Gold? Are those the dragons the Red Woman means to wake? Dragons made of gold?
1: This one is especially funny because in a certain sense, Jon may be the one true king of Westeros. So here we have Mel being like, Hey look, it's Stannis, the one true king of Westeros. And Jon's like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever you say, lady. As we know, Mel's confidence in Stannis is based on her belief that he is Azor High Reborn. But Jon is actually the real deal, of course. So, really, it's John who is implied as the one true king here. John's face is even described as a mask, further emphasizing John as being in disguise. Thus, when Stannis asks John how many golden dragons he has hidden away, the joke is that John himself is the dragon hidden away in the ice. And he will need to be woken, as we know. Even the idea of John's words being like golden dragons implies John being able to speak with dragons. Like those uh, dream people Danny sees in her House of the Undying Dream. Let us teach you the speech of dragonkind. And John may actually get a chance to speak to dragons before the story is over. Or try, anyways. Uh, so building upon the theme of waking dragons, we see that Stannis' delightful humor about misering dragons leads John to ponder the idea of Mel seeking to wake dragons, presumably through human sacrifice. Leading up to this conversation, John is actually thinking about how the baby swap he did with Mance's child and Gilly's monster, uh, and he's thinking about how monstrous it would be to give a living child to the fire, especially if his name was Monster, and he thinks about it again while giving his cover story to Mel and Stannis. No, I don't think Monster will be burned to resurrect John, and hopefully not Shireen either, but I have long predicted that Ghost's wolf body will have to be burned to send the merged ghost John's spirit, back into John's resurrected body. Mel would probably be involved in any such scenario, and we can't rule out the possibility of there being other deaths that pay for John's life, either by intention or by accident. And actually, John's death and resurrection is foreshadowed strongly at the end of this John 1 chapter.
0: Relore sends us what visions he will, but I shall seek for this man torment in the flames. Melisandre's red lips curled into a smile. I have seen you in my fires, John Snow. Is that a threat, my lady? Do you mean to burn me too?
1: Are you threatening me? Hm. I am the great Cornholio. <laughs> <laughs> now, I really do love this line. Uh, it's an example of Martin pointing at his own wordplay and yet still hiding something. John will indeed find himself in Melisandre's fires, but I have a feeling it's going to be a resurrection fire of some sort not a sacrifice fire, as John thinks here. Now, picking up right where we left off.
0: You mistake my meaning. She gave him a searching look. I fear that I make you uneasy, Lord Snow. John did not deny it. The wall is no place for a woman. You are wrong. I have dreamed of your wall, John Snow. Great was the lore that raised it, and great the spells locked beneath its ice. We walk beneath one of the hinges of the world. Melisandre gazed up at it, her breath a warm, moist cloud in the air. This is my place, as it is yours. And soon enough, you may have grave need of me. Do not refuse my friendship, John. I have seen you in the storm, hard-pressed, with enemies on every side. You have so many enemies. Shall I tell you their names? I know their names. Do not be so certain, the ruby at Melisandra's throat gleamed red. It is not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but those who smile when you are looking, and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. You will do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold. It is always cold on the wall. You think so? I know so, my lady. Then you know nothing, Jon Snow, she whispered.
1: And as you can recall, Jon never felt the fourth knife, but only the cold. It's not an accident that Jon's death is emphasized as colder than cold. I mean, we're talking you know nothing, Jon Snow level of cold here. It's the cold of the ice moon, or you might say the cold of the grave. Martin kind of gave us things in reverse here First, he foreshadowed John's waking in fire And needing Melisandre as a friend And then he gave us the whole daggers in the dark routine Which foreshadows John's death As for that death scene It does something similar Giving us resurrection foreshadowing Even as John is dying And I'm talking about John's actual death scene here So the key is the giant Woon 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 Deg Woon Dar Woon Woon Or whatever his name is uh, whom I believe is playing the role of resurrected John. So we already saw this once in the In a Grove of Ash episode, again following the ember in the ashes line of symbolism, which represents Azor Ahai's ability to spark a great blaze when he's reborn, as Melisandre says. Okay, so we talked about this at the beginning of the chapter with Sam's ember that he used to burn the white. So before we have a look at Wun-Wun's part in John's death scene, let's actually back up And pull the quote from earlier in dance, where John finds Woon Woon with a starving group of wildlings at the Weirwood Grove of Nine.
0: The fire in the center of the grove was a small sad thing. Ashes and embers and a few broken branches, burning slow and smoky. Even then it had more life than the wildlings huddled near it. Only one of them reacted when John Snow stepped from the brush. That was the child, who began to wail, clutching at his mother's ragged cloak. The woman raised her eyes and gasped. By then the grove was ringed by rangers, sliding past the bone-white trees, steel glinting in the black-gloved hands poised for slaughter. The giant was the last to notice them. He had been asleep, curled up by the fire, but something woke him—the child's cry, the sound of snow crunching beneath the black boots, a sudden indrawn breath. When he stirred, it was as if a boulder had come to life. He heaved himself into a sitting position with a snort, pawing at his eyes with hands as big as hams to rub the sleep away, until he saw Iron Emmet, his sword shining in his hand, roaring. He came leaping to his feet, and one of those huge hands closed around a Amal and jerked up. So first the embers and the
1: ashes are compared to the wildlings. Then one of the wildlings, the giant, wakes like a boulder and roars like a dragon, He does this when menaced with a shining sword. We can also see that the rangers penetrating the circle of white trees with their swords as moon penetration symbolism. So after the giant leaps to his feet, John tries to reason with him, but is cut off when...
0: The giant bellowed again, a sound that shook the leaves in the trees, and slammed his maul against the ground. The shaft of it was six feet of gnarled oak. The head, a stone as big as a loaf of bread. The impact made the ground shake. Some of the other wildlings went scrambling for their own weapons.
1: So, the bellowing is important here because it's the horn that wakes the sleeper symbol. Just as it is when the Titan of Bravos bellows at sunrise and sunset. And by the way, the next episode coming up uh, in the Blood of the Other series will be all about all the horns. Horn blowing, unicorns, horn blasts, waking sleepers. Anyways... The giant uh, bellows and then makes the ground shake when he wakens up. And I'm sure you noticed that. Because this is basically, I mean, this is giant's awakening in the earth symbolism. Come to life. It's always been an obvious euphemism or kenning for an earthquake. But here we have an actual giant waking up and making the earth shake. I like how this is paired with the boulder coming to life symbolism. The boulder coming to life is the moon meteor bursting into meteor childbirth. And the earth shaking is when they land. So on the ground and in terms, in people terms, the one who awakens when all this exploding happens is John, the dragon locked in ice. His shadow, at least, is 20 feet tall when etched in moonlight against the wall, which kind of makes him a giant. But uh, now that we've seen that Woon Woon can play the ember in the ashes and the giant dragon boulder awakening from the ice moon, let's go ahead and flash forward a couple of chapters to John's death scene beginning with John having just finished the pink letter speech in the shield hall.
0: Then he heard the shouting, a roar so loud it seemed to shake the wall. That had come from Hardin's tower, my lord. Horse reported, he might have said more, but the scream cut him off. Val was John's first thought, but that was no woman's scream. That was a man in mortal agony.
1: Cutting in briefly, uh, Harden's Tower is the tower that Val has been kept in Castle Black. And she is obviously an ice moon maiden. So Woon Woon sleeps there as well, uh, and that shows him as being the ice moon or inside the ice moon. The scream is at first thought to be Val's, which neatly implies it as the icy version of Nissa Nissa's cry of agony. Then outside we will indeed find ice-moon destruction aplenty. Picking up right where we left off.
0: He broke into a run. Horse and Rory raced after him. Is it whites? Asked Rory. John wondered. Could his corpses have escaped their chains?
1: So breaking in again, these are the whites that John captured and locked up in the ice cells for research purposes. But if John's corpse is locked in the ice cell as seems to be thoroughly foreshadowed, then the talk here of White's escaping from the ice cells is fairly straightforward foreshadowing of John's resurrection from the ice. Now, the ruckus is being caused by Woon-Woon, of course, not escaped corpses, but I think inserting this line here means that Woon-Woon's ruckus is meant to parallel John's awakening, as I've been suggesting, which is like a corpse awakening. Uh, so, picking back up.
0: The screaming had stopped by the time they came to Harden's tower. But one wagged dar one was still roaring. The giant was dangling a bloody corpse by one leg, the same way Arya used to dangle her doll when she was small, swinging it like a morning star when minced by vegetables. Arya never tore her dolls to pieces, though. The dead man's sword was yards away, the snow beneath it turning red. "'Let him go!' Jon shouted. "'One-one, let him go!' One-one did not hear or did not understand." The giant was bleeding himself, with sword cuts on his belly and his arm. He swung the dead knight against the grey stone of the tower, again and again and again, until the man's head was red and pulpy as a summer melon. The knight's cloak flapped in the cold air. Of white wool it had been, bordered in cloth of silver and patterned with blue stars. Blood and bone, they were flying everywhere.
1: Blood and bone, flying everywhere, what a mess. So, remember when John smashes the pillow into the wall of his chambers, scattering stuffing everywhere to create a flurry of feathers? Well, here's Woon Woon, who I say stands in for John, and he's swinging Sir Patrick's star and blood-speckled corpse against the wall like a morning star, with blood and bone and blue star-patterned capes flying everywhere. Blood and bone are weird colors, and blue stars are, well, blue stars, symbols of the others and ice-moon meteors. So once again, it looks like parallel, breaking out of the weirwood net and breaking out of the ice moon symbolism. The highlight is, of course, Woon Woon, swinging the corpse against the wall of the tower, being compared to Arya swinging her doll like a morning star. So just as in Jon Snow's moon dream, the thing hitting the wall really seems like a falling comet or star. I mean, it really, really friggin' does. So, we're also reminded of Sansa's famous snow castle scene in the Eerie here, where Sweet Robin swings his doll around, pretending it's a giant, and knocks down part of Sansa's snow castle version of Winterfell. That was both a giant and a doll, and it's knocking down a snowy wall. It's very similar to the Woon Woon scene, and again, it's fairly ominous. So now, hearken back to the other Woon Woon scene inside the Weirwood Grove, where he awakens like a boulder, and then makes the ground shake. And you can really start to get a sense of what the awakening of the dragon locked in ice is all about. Boulders, falling stars, giants awakening in the earth, the wall being struck, and John's resurrection. An unbelievable cold, but then an ember in the ashes igniting a great blaze. Snow that the moon called down, and a moon that snow called down, perhaps. An ice-moon apocalypse, the invasion of the others... And a new last hero rising to meet them. He's the blood of the dragon and the blood of the other. And when he wakes up, he'll be our first official in-the-flesh green zombie. He'll want to look to the sky when he does wake up, because he may need to duck. And there you go, folks. Blood of the other five. In the books. Oh, yeah. Be sure to come out to the live stream this Sunday, July 1st, 3 o'clock Eastern, where I'll be joined by both Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire and Sanrixian, who will be doing live animations as we discuss the Ice Moon Apocalypse. So I'll see you there at the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. Ta-ta
0: for now.